Court. What's up, Internet? You're tuned into episode 140 of the Comics Pals. I'm one of your normal co-hosts, flying the plane today, Mr. Pete and Bessie, joined as always by Mr. Phil Casey. Uh, not always. I've been gone for three weeks, but hey, come here. <laughs> well, see, now you're back and you scared everyone else off. I'm the only one that would do the show That's with you. That's true. Yeah, as soon as everyone found out that I'm back for a week... <laughs> They scuttered off, like, lifting up a rug with a bunch of roaches underneath it, because that's what they are. They're a bunch of roaches. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, if anything, though, what that means is that they'll survive the nuclear bomb that is this podcast exploding, and the two of us are just going to get, you know, burnt up in the flames. I've known that all along, is that those three could survive a nuclear holocaust. Are you kidding me? Kale can barely manage regular life. Kale's like a pug in that he struggles to breathe, he definitely can't reproduce without some help, and if humans went extinct, he'd follow short behind. And he's got bad hips. Well, the worst hips, but they're not childbearing hips either. No. But, you know, he bears the fruit of our show. But I think what's nice is that for episode 140 here, we've got a brand new combination of just you and I. We've never done the show alone together. Yeah, true solo bolo, a little mono e mono, just a yeah. just a two of us. <laughs> we can make it if we try. Oh, dude, I'm just checking out the meter right now. Our listeners are going way down. <laughs> no, no, they're going through the roof. They're, they're like, no, Sean, to write the ship. We're out, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to say, Sean would never let me sing on this show. No, because he doesn't sing on this show. <laughs> <laughs> but but what I think is cool about it is that what we're proving is that, you know, uh, even 70 years into publishing, we can continually find ways to freshen up the brand, you know? And that the fans the fans love it. They love, they love what's the, new, the right? The millions and the millions. I'll tell you what. We're... I really hope that we don't rubber band back to the status quo in a week. Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, I think if we don't, we could be on track to sell one million episodes of this podcast (laughs) this year. I'd bet on it. (laughs) All right, so uh, if this is your first time listening, welcome again to the Comics Pals. We are a weekly podcast where we talk about the world of comic books and uh, often do stuff like that um, and goof off. So if you like that, uh, please join us and, you know, support the show by giving us a like on your audio platform of choice, following at the Comics Pals, wherever your social media is sold, and checking out some of our social media exclusive shows like Phil's Notes, where Phil grabs a book off of his shelf every week, or my comic book history series, where you can learn a little bit about some of your favorite superheroes. Nice. Uh, so there's lots of good stuff on our on our uh, social media pages these days, so go follow those. Uh, go hit us up on YouTube, um, you know. You know how to do the social media things. Those are plugs. Ring the bell, too, obviously. Ah, notifications. Yeah, of course. Because that's a thing I don't think everyone knows about. No, that's a good point. Um, or grab our RSS feed. There's there's some inside Oof. baseball plugs for Oof. you. <laughs> so, so before we get into news this week, uh, we're going to kick the show off with some pals pulls. Phil, uh, you've got two picks for us this week. Number one, you have Lois Lane number No one. coincidence, that's number one on here. Um, yeah, I'm really excited for these side Superman books to launch here. Uh, Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane being the chief among them. I don't know if there's any others. There probably are. I'm sure all our listeners will hit me up and tell me if there are, but I think that might be it. Yeah. Uh, and this one is being written by Greg Rucka, who's an amazing talent Ooh. in the industry. 
I didn't know who was doing it. That's yeah, cool. Um, I don't have it in front of me to see who's doing the art, but... Um, well, while you find that, I, I wanted to bring this up. I saw a headline while I was putting the show together this morning um, that apparently it's going to like deal with... It's going to have parallels to like the real-life migrant crisis. Uh, like It's going to deal with some like high political themes, and I was like, oh... That's really cool. I wonder who's writing that. Now you tell me Greg Rucka, and I'm like, hmm, this might have to be one of my pals' pulls, too. Yeah, I mean, Sounds a good. hard-hitting journalism book of Lois and Clark is the kind of shit I'm here for. I, yeah, that sounds Now, dope. I don't necessarily need Clark to do it. Then there's There's been some really good Superman books uh, in the mid-2000s that would delve into undercover reporter Clark Kent and stuff, but... A Lois Lane book who is, you know, the best reporter in the DC universe doing some actual hard-hitting journalism. I am here for it because we are a couple of journalist boys and that's the kind of stuff we like. Yeah, yeah. I, I That's like, that's that's a very compelling pitch to me for a story. Uh, the artist for this book is Mike Perkins who did the uh, graphic novelization of Stephen King's The Stand, uh, which oh. I bought for a friend and he spoke really highly of. Uh, he also did some art for Annihilation Conquest prologue, which was good. And the other notable thing on here is that he did Superman versus Terminator and Green Lantern versus Aliens. Okay. So. It's a little all over the place. So this is kind of like, not not to say uh, perfect opportunity. their first, yeah, not to say their first big book, but like their first like ongoing job like this, which is, is this an ongoing or is I it a mini? I think it's a mini. Okay. Which is fine with me. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I, that's that's probably better actually. If it's really good, just give him another mini. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know who came up with this idea. Maybe it was a Bendis thing because maybe because Bendis is you know all over the Superman uh, place, and he probably like many comic book authors of his age uh, loves the Silver Age Superman stuff, and he was probably like, oh, we should do a Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen thing. I'm talking out of my ass, but it'd be I, I, whoever came I'm, up with it, I'm all for it. Yeah, I mean, I don't. <sighs> Yeah, obviously we we don't know, so I would hesitate to say that it was his idea, but that seems to fall in line with part of his initiative for the Superman brand, right? Was that he wanted to explore more of Metropolis and more of like like Superman's extended cast. Yeah. So whether or not it was his idea, I feel like the editorial mandate definitely seems motivated by the direction that he's taking the brand. Yeah. So if these books are good, I would say you probably have Bendis' Superman to thank just for the fact that they exist at what all. What a quagmire. What a right? damn quagmire <laughs> to be in. Uh, the internet still seems to really hate his books. Uh, I now, now, what's interesting is what I can't really distinguish is whether or not Peter Tomasi Superman run really developed this die-hard following, like a niche following, because mm-hmm. people really liked the whole super family thing of Lois Clark and, and their son John. And mm-hmm. I think Bendis is uh, differentiated from that a bit, and I think like people are very vocally upset about that. But Sean's he really stands by it. He's keep push- he's pushing me to read it, and we did that uh, event Leviathan number zero last week or two weeks ago, four weeks ago because I've been on the show in a while. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I promised him I would read it, and it's going yeah, to happen. And I, I don't know, man. It's interesting because I think this is one of those things where I don't know if it's just that there's like a vocal minority that are still hating on the book because Bendis is a joke to them or because they were into the the previous run with the super family stuff. Um, 
But, like, the book is selling really well, so obviously people are enjoying it or they wouldn't keep buying it. Yeah. Um, you know? Like, Batman has suffered because people are mad about what Tom King is doing. Like, obviously they don't feel that way about Bendis. And, like, Sean always says, like, Bendis sells. And I don't think that's just because of his name. You know, I think, like, there are a lot of people who maybe don't go on Twitter and Facebook and bitch about comics, but really like reading Bendis' stuff. That, that feels know? like it has to be a small diagram. A small Venn diagram. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone that reads yeah, you comics think. loves bitching. Yeah, that's true. Um, and what else comes out this week that I didn't pull, speaking of Tom King? His... Walmart Superman run is being released in regular comic book shops this Wednesday, and mm. which featured the extremely controversial number three, where Lois gets murdered a lot or something. Yeah. So yeah. that wasn't on my poll list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what was on your poll list was Green Lantern number nine. Ooh, ten out of ten, A plus transition right there, my friend. Yes, yeah, this, this is the book that you weren't crazy about, but you love the art. It's the it's the Grant, Grant Morrison book. <laughs> yeah, that Liam Sharp. Yeah, it's beautiful. That art. Yeah, I mean, I still look at the covers every time they come out. I'm just like, God damn, he's so good. <laughs> yeah, this book is terrific. This is the best that Green Lantern has been in, since uh, really, since John's left, and even a little bit before that, because this run kind of tapered off toward the end, because that's when his responsibilities with DC Entertainment started ramping up. But, sure. Oh, it's terrific. Uh, which is which issue is this? I already forgot the number. This was oh, nine. I think this is it. I think this is it. I think the last one was the penultimate issue. It's done at nine. I thought it was, 12. it was twelve. Whatever. It's it's we're coming to the bottom half, bottom third. Yeah. I thought I thought nine might have been it, but either way, terrific book. Uh, if you guys haven't read it, absolutely, you know, you can pick up the trade or whatever when it comes out because it's either nine or twelve issues. Um, just. Oh, it's Grant at his best. Uh, I love when he's able to kind of put his little stamp on the Justice League core characters like this. Uh, at this point, the only one he hasn't done, I think, is like Martian Manhunter and Aquaman. Because he hmm. did Flash with Mark. Yeah, I guess. I mean, he did Justice League in the 90s, obviously, but like, you know, he had his 18 issues to Superman, also All Star Superman, Batman, six years on that book, plus some, you know, like stuff like Gothic and serious house um you know he did one roman earth one volume ones through three third one comes out i think next year uh he did flash with mark millar so and this is green lantern so i think the only ones he hasn't touched are aquaman and uh martian manhunter damn yeah no i guess you must be right so i want that i also i'm trying to see him do like spider-man or something that would be awesome yeah, I'm trying to find it. I don't. I can't see. It just says it's a new ongoing series, but I know it's supposed to end. I at thought it ended at nine or twelve, but it's uh, it's if it's ongoing. I didn't think it was an ongoing. It was an ongoing series. That's what it says on DC.com. Oh, that's cool as hell. All right. Yeah, maybe it, maybe it's not gonna end. Maybe we like were mistaken thinking it was limited. I don't know. Let us know if you know. Blame Sean because um, he always said it was limited. Yeah, but either way, uh, if if you're interested in it and you haven't checked it out, we've also done reviews of I think issues one and two. Yeah, on the show, first. Uh, so you can go check yeah. those out. Absolutely, and also check out our event Leviathan uh, review tying in with that Lois Lane. Yeah, that we just named. So, that was four yep. weeks ago. What about you, Pete? What was on your poll list? <laughs> nothing this week. Oh my god! <laughs> you set me up for it beautifully, and I got oh. nothing. I was like, I was like really looking to. I'm like anything on here that I'm like, eh, it's nothing I really wanted to to talk about too much. Oof. 
Yeah. Well, you know what? Wildstorm 24 comes out this week. I'll pick up a little slack here. Uh, that's the Warren Ellis uh, Wildstorm book. I think this might be the last issue. That book has been exceptional. There wow. you go. Uh, I plugged it a few times. I, I stopped plugging it because like, I don't always want to plug the same thing on this show. But um, the Wildstorm universe is terrific. This has this this feels like a real geopolitical conflict. Uh, it's kind of like a spy thriller. Oh, it's just great. Absolutely worth picking up. That sounds cool. Yeah. I, I've like I've never really done anything in the Wildstorm universe. Wild universe. Yeah. yeah, and like I've I have a really warped perception of what it is. I guess. Listen, um, Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, the two Bruce Timm cartoons that you know mm-hmm. universally renowned you know, television, were heavily based off the Authority book from the '90s, which I believe was also written by Warren Ellis. Oh. Okay. All right. Okay. That's, All right. That's All right. a selling point. So I I just checked again. Set me up again. Set me up uh, for another Pete, thing. What's your reading this week, bud? Oh, you know what is out this week that I was interested what's in, up? Phil? Uh, it is Crowded Number Seven by friend of the show Christopher hey! Sabella, Rose Stein, and Ted Brandt. Hey! Shout out to all of those great friends of the show. We have interviews with every one of them. And, um, so go check those out. Two. That's right. Uh, did we ever actually multiple? Because we've interviewed in him at Comic Con as well. I was about to say. Yeah. So head over to our YouTube channel if you want to check that one out. Uh, we've got previous episodes of the show where we've had the entire creative team of Crowded on. And a uh, little bit of a, of a tease I'll give you is that uh, we're actually going to be having Mr. Sabella back on the show. That's, tr- that's true. Uh, in just a few weeks. And we're going to be talking all about Crowded and, you know, I w- presumably Crowded number seven. So uh, <laughs> we'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah, great opportunity for you listeners to read what he's written so that when he comes back, you'll be really well-versed and you can listen to what a wonderful guest he is. Well, and this is like a perfect time to jump on, right? Because this is the start of volume two. Yeah, exactly. This is the return of Crowded. So you can go grab volume one probably for 10 bucks at your local comic shop. Uh, one of those image, you know, like they do the first volumes are always like 10. So uh, yeah, go pick it up. Check it out. And uh, be ready for our interview in, uh, I think it's two or three weeks. We're st- but it's coming up. It's in July. We're still pinning the date down. It's coming up. Look forward to yeah. it, though. All right, so with that, can I get a little bit of background on this one, Phil? Can, can you give me a little news? A news the, the it sounds like you just did it for yourself, but okay. Well, okay, well, I'll do that, and then you say it's time for the news. It's time for the news here on the Comics Palace proper, TCPN. See, this is the kind of high-quality gags that you get when when Sean's not here to reel us in, guys. Oh, only the finest of gags. Speaking of only the finest, we're going to kick things off on this week by this news week by talking about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and how its sequel is now, quote, definitely happening yeah so i think it comes as no surprise to anyone who saw spider-verse or the fact that it won an academy award and a golden globe uh back in 2019 uh early 2019 uh that a sequel would be in the works right the movie was an absolute smash it made 375 million dollars at the box office you know like i it was i want to ride it like a cruise because it's a sunflower and I think my love is too much. <laughs> There's a little Sway Lee Post Malone reference for you guys. <laughs> You're so hip, Phil. Oh, I'm really 
I'm extremely hip. But uh, just so just recently, producer Amy Pascal told io9 in an interview that they are, quote, uh, she said, quote, we are definitely hard at work on a sequel. And then uh, in the GameSpot article that I pulled this story from, they pulled a little something out, out that I wanted to chew on with you today. You got some gum, huh? Yeah, yeah. I put the show together, so I got to just put this basically non, non-piece non of news in, so I had an excuse to talk about Spider-Verse Ooh. again. So. Yeah, no, I, I know. I knew you'd indulge me. Now the dad, now uh, the daddy's not home. The kids will play. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're eating ice cream for dinner tonight, kids. So um, this uh, th- this quote comes from Rodney Rotham, who's one of the co-directors, and uh, it was this was back at the film's digital and blue Blu-ray release back in March 2019. He told GameStop. Uh, or, I'm sorry, GameSpot, excuse me. Quote, going forward, if there are more movies, I'm sure there will be more surprises. Uh, and then he said that there was an Australian Spider-Man that was cut from Spider-Verse. Oh, crikey. Uh, and, and he said that in addition to more Spideys, that there could be uh, cameos from previous on, like, movie Peter Parkers, like Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire. And uh, that apparently, like, Chris Miller, who's the producer, said that they had, like, talked about that and they just couldn't get it to like line up right so all all of this and then that little post credit spe- scene with uh spidey 2099 has got me thinking like what do you want out of a spider-verse sequel? oh i'm glad like, you asked um and, and which spider-man do you want to so see it's funny first thing is it took me weeks to realize that oscar isaac played spider-man 2099 which was but mm-hmm. to me yeah, awesome. Inside Lewin Davis, Star Wars, Ex Machina, my man's been around. Yeah. <laughs> now he gets to be a Spider-Man. Now, instead of a sequel, which I do want to see a sequel, I kind of also want to see uh, spin-off movies starring Spider-Man Noir. <laughs> played yeah. by Nicolas Cage himself. Uh, and... Wait, 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 Phil, uh, shut up. I almost ruined this segment. Oh, okay. You know okay. why? Cause it's the random question of the week! Now the segment's ruined. Am I yelling? I can't tell. My ears are blown out. <laughs> okay, so your spinoffs, Spider-Man Noir. Yeah, give me a Nick Cage Spider-Man Noir movie where he talks about beating up Nazis and, and shit and stealing Tommy guns from fucking gangsters. I'm here for that. And he has a Rubik's Cube. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only way he can see color. It's like his totem from the movie Inception. Um. Also, give me a damn Spider-Ham movie. Yes, give me a John Mulaney Spider-Ham movie. I would watch the shit out of that. Did you ever see the uh, the short that they made? No. So I bought the Blu-ray when it came out because it came out like right around the time that I moved. And when I first moved to, to Philly, I didn't have internet for like a week. So we were watching a lot of DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff. And I was like, fuck it, I'm going to buy Spider-Verse. And there's, like, a Spider-Ham animated short that's, like, what he was doing before he gets sucked into the movie. And it's awesome. I would watch – I would totally watch at least least a set of shorts. Like, if they don't make a Spider-Ham movie, if every one of the Spider-Verse spinoffs had a Spider-Ham short, that would be awesome. I I saw him on Fallon after that movie came out, and he was talking about how they kind of just let him do his thing in the recording booth. And he was extremely profane constantly. And honestly, 
I would love to see a Who Framed Roger Rabbit style Spider-Ham movie with a very profane oh, John Mulaney as Spider-Ham. Oh, and, that would and be make awesome. Nick Kroll his human friend. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> oh, I would definitely watch that. Oh, that would be terrific. Um, damn, that, that was on the fly. That was an on the fly idea. Um, honestly, though, I wasn't on the review for... Um, I wasn't on the review for that movie that when it came out and i have to say like two things to praise it it was the best animated movie i think i've seen since the iron giant so that's like 20 years shit yeah but i think i i think i agree with you i mean there's other ones i really like i love coco i love toy story 3 and several other pixar movies of course up yeah there's a lot of really good ones but i think this one takes the cake to stand out yeah just the animation's so distinct and like pixar has like an in-house method of animating their movies and there's nothing wrong with this in-house style but this thing was so different yeah yeah it's just like i was talking about this last night actually like i think it's just so cool how it it combines like the like the comic book aesthetic with like the 3d modeling of like a pixar movie with like after effects like music video internet style it's, and it's just like it's so gritty and it's, like stylish it's, it's uh. very fresh it feels like it's on the pulse um, yeah it's just a remarkable film and the second thought i had was it's the best pure superhero movie since the original superman movie from 1978 going back 40 I years think- and I think I agree with that too, man. Because it, it's just like it gets its it gets its source material so well. You know, like I think like that uh, that that funeral scene oh. with with Mary Jane where she gives the eulogy. Like I, that was the first time I cried in the yeah. movie. There's like three moments that like get me every time I watch it. But that one, I've never heard such a like succinct and like on the nose explanation of like why the character resonates, you know, and like why. Like, he is such a, you know, a face for for Marvel. And, yeah, you're right. It, it has so much heart. Not that other superhero movies don't. And, obviously, movies like Logan, The Dark Knight are, are better movies, movies. But this feels like a true love letter to the source material and just to animation. It's just, it's, it, it stands out as a diamond in a sea of pearls i guess i don't know it's yeah no i think that's a great way to put it because it's not that all these other movies are bad it's just this one is so good and i think the thing is too that like to your point like it has heart and it's not to say that there aren't a lot of like superhero movies that have heart i think most of them do and that's why they resonate but i also think that like this movie is way way more sincere than i thought it would be yeah you know because it's it's a comedy and it's very funny but when it goes heart when it goes like dark it does it and it and it leans into it and it's not afraid to go there and it doesn't do what a lot of the mcu movies do where it like does something heavy and then like makes a joke oh, and undercuts I hate that things, so much you know and I, I hate that too you gotta let a moment breathe and like when you think about like peter's funeral or like miles conversation with his dad through the door or like you know when his uncle dies like all those moments like they land so well because they're earned because they set them up they let them sit like land and then the characters have to sit in it 
Yeah, and I know I'm probably alone in this thought because a lot of people, the emotional impact of Infinity War, of the characters dying or disappearing, um, I know that like really landed and upset a lot of people. But it didn't really have that impact for me because I like just knew they were going to be back. And obviously with with Endgame, there were different implications to that. But uh, I mean, it it didn't have the same resonance as it did here. Like when Logan died at the end of Logan, that had like a that felt like a real powerful moment because it was like a culmination of seventeen years of movies, and this character had a real he was a real like cowboy type character just like a real strong yeah. sense of he, he had a real real uh moral compass to relative to the character and so when he died you feel bad because we're naturally gravitated toward care people in general who have a real strong sense of self and just like they have, they have their rules that like people gravitate toward a person with a purpose like that yeah and like purpose and honor yeah. yeah he's like a samurai yeah. that's why the whole ja- japan thing works with logan too um yeah well, that's funny because logan 2 is also it's, that's what it is it's the second wolverine movie <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely. Uh, Pete, what would you want to see in a spider-verse sequel you know i honestly it's tough because i i think i actually agree with your assessment of like wanting to see them just break the characters up and do smaller stories now because they did such a good job with the first one that, like, I don't want it to just be like, let's get the ba- gang back together for another adventure. Like, I think that would kind of under, like, undersell the gravity of the first film. There, it's, it's tricky because the narrative story of the first one was really, like, it was really, it's going to be hard to follow up because you had a Spider-Man that had lost his purpose you know uh he became you know he was out of shape mary jane left him he he forgot how to be spider-man he forgot the great power comes great responsibility thing and you meanwhile have a spider-man who's running from being spider-man he's a teenager doesn't have a sense of purpose yet because he's trying to figure out what that sense of purpose is and these two characters gravitate toward one another like uh like two comets whose you know gravitational pull pulls them together and yeah they help each other they both help yep. each other to be spider-man yeah exactly and that it's it's so well it's just so well written it's so well executed and i think it's like it's going to be hard to follow that up without pushing the pushing things in new directions you know because like as much as i'd like to see peter and miles like reunite i kind of also don't like i think i'd rather see a story about Peter in his universe and Miles in his. Yeah, it's you don't see this in superhero movies very often because oftentimes superheroes are static characters, which isn't a bad thing, but they often don't have arcs um, that have a payoff because they're, they they need to be in multiple movies. Now, like you know, I, Tony Stark obviously had an arc in the Avengers movies. Like, there, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but this movie, they both have a natural conclusion. Yeah. And I feel like the fact that their characters are so tied together and that, like, one informs the other so much in that way, like, it just works. And I don't really, like, want to retread that ground unless they have a really good reason. The thing is, I trust them to have a good reason because of how well they executed on the first movie. And I hope that they're not going to just cash in. I hope that they just deliver on having a vision again. And whatever that vision is, I'm interested in seeing it, you know? Um, Because they proved to me that they get 
how to do a good Spider-Man story. And that story was fresh. Like, it pulled things from a lot of other Spider-Man stories, but it, it didn't feel like a retreading to me. There are so many Pixar movies that are perfect as standalone movies. And, you know, since the Disney-Pixar merger, remerger, they've lost that narrative with the sequels of all these Pixar movies where, like... Yeah, they're fun. None of them are inherently really bad, but they're nowhere near as novel or good as the first one. Yeah, it's just more. And, like, that's not, like you said, it's not a bad thing, but it's not, it's not what I want. Because, like, what made any one of those films special is that they're unique. Yeah. You know, and like, and they tell a story and it's kind of like, yeah, like, I'm sure that these characters go on to have more adventures and everything. Great. But like, I'm good. When, you know, like when you a, have a static protagonist or, you know, that, that, that's again, a, not a negative thing. So many people measure the weight of a character or a story by the growth of characters, which I think is a flawed perception of media or or, or, or fiction or storytelling, because why superhero movies really benefit from having sequels is because most of the time the, the hero doesn't necessarily have like a, a huge arc to overcome. Usually it happens in the first movie, but they lend themselves to having more stories. Right. Um, and when you are able to tie, like, I think I always come back to the Dragon Ball analogy when they tied off Piccolo's arc, where he is an evil character becomes Gohan's stepdad, basically he became a background character. When uh, Vegeta finally overcame his obstacles, he became a static character and less interesting because people really gravi- really gravitated toward like his you know struggle. His struggle of becoming a good guy. Um, Gohan, as soon as he defeated Cell and learned how to be a hero, became a background character. Like that's the problem when you develop a character that has to overcome obstacles and and and, and develop over time is that they eventually have a payoff. And then it's hard to come out of that. Yeah. And we, we actually talked about this a little bit last week uh, in regards to... I think it was last week anyway, in regards to Spider-Man. Um, where it is... It's like a tough line for me. Because I know what I want out of Spider-Man. And I think it's possible for them to tell new stories that will interest me. Um, but it is also tough because like I want a certain amount of rubber banding. But I also want it to be new. And that's like it's in, you know it's like a, it's like an impossible dance. Like every once in a while, I'll get a Spider Verse or like a life story where it's like, oh, this is like what I want. But like, yeah, I mean, Peter Parker in the books has been a struggling asshole for fifty years with who means well. Yeah, because like that's what the stories need. If he solved all his yeah. problems, people would not be as interested in the books. Yeah, right, exactly, and, like, you, it's it's tough. Either way, we could talk about this forever, so I'm going to move us on, but um, I... One, no, this, one other I, thought, because I know you want to move yeah. on. One other question, I guess. Give sure. me another novel Spider-Man character to put in a movie like this, like your Nick okay. Cage, noir Spider-Man, your John Mulaney, Spider-Ham. What's, like, a novel, fun, new character we could add with a with a, a appropriate kind of voice actor attached. Do you have one in mind when you're asking I'm me this thinking question? I'm, I'm, that came to me on the spot. I'm trying to think of something right now. My first thought is a Shaquille O'Neal character because I love Shaq, but I can't think of how we could. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of 
What's up? Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal is a Scarlet Spider. Oh, Oh, that'd be awesome. (laughs) No, he's Kane. He's Kane. That would be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't know. Like, when you say, like, spin-off Spider-Man, like, my mind kind of immediately goes to Ben Riley and the Scarlet Spider. Because sure. like, I know people hate the Clone Saga, but I think the Scarlet Spider costume is so cool. Oh, the cool. late 90s one? Yeah, with the, like, the hoodie well, and, like, the weird, like, b- like chunky, like, bracelets and stuff. The like, Scar- the big-ass, like, web shooters that look like Black Widow's, like, <laughs> things. <laughs> like, I just, I love it. I love the well, Scarlet the, Spider. The- there's a Spider-Man book from like four years ago that was like a Scarlet Spider book with uh, O'Reilly, and people loved that book because it was like really well written. I can't remember who wrote it. Uh, yeah. He was like red and black in the color. Uh, it's supposed to be really good. Yeah. Um, that would be cool. Also, I I don't know who I'd want to voice him though. I want uh, Jeff Goldblum Spider-Man. Oh, dude! It's like, but like, who would he be? Someone that's. Like, how about Captain Universe, where, like, in this reality, <laughs> in this reality, yes. Spider-Man has been fused to the Captain Universe uh, oh entity God. for, like, decades, and it's, like, Forever. it's made very ethereal and spacey. Oh, my God. I love that like, idea. Like, what if he spoke in the future, like uh, Dr. Manhattan does, and he's like, oh, wait, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> I would just love for them to have like, <laughs> like he has this like big like booming like. No, okay, this wouldn't make any sense in this movie. But now that okay. I'm talking about this, do you know who I really want Jeff Goldblum oh. to play? Galactus. <laughs> 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 just Jeff Goldblum, big booming voice. Uh, 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 I I uh, don't want to eat your planet, but uh, 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 I have to sustain myself. <laughs> oh my god yeah that's a that's a good one uh you know what would be cool too would be japanese spider-man oh so akira Yoshida would play him yeah of hey! course no but like do you know the one i'm yes. talking about like the japanese yeah. tv yes. version and he has like a, he has like the crazy uh mech yes. and everything and he's like basically like a super saiton character you kind of got that but with not the super saiton spider-man super sentai spider-man but yeah yeah sentai sorry the 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 the, the girl what was her name her name started with a p but, but the remember. whole thing was that I she can't... was like the manga japanese yeah she had the robot yeah. and the spider yeah that was from like a japanese like manga sure marvel manga series that they had done which is cool too um but i think it would be really cool if they like if they had the because like you know how like they showed the 1966 spider-man with the like i would love for him to come into it too and be in that crappy like kind of style i think the 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 super sentai spider-man would be cool for the same reason like if you had him come in and he only spoke japanese but he had like subtitles or something or if he had like big bubbles popping behind his head and stuff and he was like super like you know stylized and stuff i think like that would be kind of cool great oh that'd be terrific i you know what it is is i'm picturing him in the way that jordan gibson draws him you know like with that very like very stylized kind of look that that Spider-Verse has. Yeah. Like, I think that would be kind of sick. I think that could be a really fun, like, deep cut as well. I know. I like it a lot. Uh, You can make him super anime-y, even though he's, uh, like, an older version of, like, a 60s Spider-Man. Yeah. I think... Oh, I like it. I think there's a lot of potential. Uh, I think any of those could be good. 
I'm trying to think of other. Oh, you could have Spider Punk. Oh yeah, you gotta have that one in there somewhere. Uh, yeah, you could play him. Uh, that'd be a really fun, like Andrew Garfield, Jeff Rosenstock. Oh, f- shit, <laughs> Jeff fucking Rosenstock. That's oh. who. That would be awesome. Oh, imagine how they can animate him. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's terrific. Oh my god. And he's an, and then Jeff could like write a, a, a song that oh. he plays, you know. Like imagine, imagine this is just like a montage scene. Like none of these characters have like major, major placement, but it's like Miles like getting blunt, like shot through the multiverse, and he spends like a few like s- like a scene or two with oh. each of them, and it's just like Jeff just plays. There's like the Spider-Man theme playing as he's going through these universes, and one of them is just like a oh. Jeff Rosenstock cover. Oh. Like I love it. Love it! That would be You know good. they would do, like, Tom DeLong though. <sighs> I don't know, man. I don't think so. <laughs> he is kind of controversial right now. That's fair. Yeah. I feel like I feel like Jeff Rosenstock, like, he's an up-and-comer. Oh. He does music for, uh, for a Cartoon Network show Does he now. really? He's got... Yeah, Craig of I the Creek. I did not know that! Oh, Yeah, awesome. it's, um... You know that show, Steven Universe, yes. that I like? Uh, one of the guys who worked on that, um, I think it's Ian Jones Courtley, uh, started making a, his own show, Craig of the Creek, and Jeff does all the music for it. Oh my god, it. that's amazing! It's, it's like all of the music is like ska punk with like a xylophone and uh, synthesizers, and I'm just like, this is the best if you, ever. <laughs> if you would have told me that would have happened in 2009 when I discovered his music, I would have lost my right? damn mind. Yeah, it's like it, it. What a world from bomb the music industry to to Craig oh. of the Creek. That's the evolution of the yeah. punk, I guess. Look, it really look, is. Look at you. Yeah. Evolve and find a way to make money or die in the streets. <laughs> I'm going to die in the streets. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, so moving off the first item on the news list, somehow, we thought this would be a quick one. Uh, Dark Phoenix is already being pulled from theaters. That was the quick one, Just- baby. <laughs> Just three weeks into its release. So since the last time you were on the show, Phil, <laughs> the, sh- the movie's already being well, Man, pulled. the world's changed so much with my absence. <laughs> yeah, so according to uh, Exhibitor Relations Co. on Twitter, Dark Phoenix is set to lose 1,667 theaters this week, which amounts to about 44% of the cinemas it has been shown in in the United States. Uh, all I can think of is that video or gif of Sophie Turner, who plays Phoenix in the movie, at a New York Rangers game, chugging a glass of wine just, and dabbing. And dabbing. <laughs> She's just like, oh my god. Like, I went from being on top of the world, Game of Thrones ended poorly, X-Men came out and flopped. She's like, shit. Like, <laughs> Drink? No, well, she's married to a Jonas brother now, so. It's true. He's yeah. a sucker for her. I was not, I'm, I'm still being trendy. A lot of musical cues on this one. Um, So, yeah, uh, this is, it's, I mean, not really surprising. If you want some of the numbers, uh, it came in second place at the box office opening weekend earlier this month. Yeah, but still underperformed. Uh, The next week, uh, it pulled in $32.8 million its first weekend, and then it had a significant second week drop. So it's like was already bad at the time of the writing of the CBR article that I'm pulling this from, which is like a few days old now. Uh, it earned just sixty million domestically and one seventy two point eight from internationals, bringing its whole gross to two thirty three, uh, which is like a huge loss because it caught the estimated production budget is two hundred million, 
And that's not including marketing or distribution. And there was a good amount of marketing for it, even though it didn't really do it any favors. I would say some people would get fired if the ship wasn't already sinking. Yeah, right? It's funny because the article says this signals, signifies a financial blow to Fox. It's like, whatever. Like, <laughs> it doesn't even exist. It's like it existed like five well, minutes. Well, I mean, they got the news division still, which is making so much money. So I don't. I, they're they're yeah. really crying over there. Yeah, whatever. Uh, so if you want to hear our uh, Dark Phoenix review and hear how it's, I think, Sean's favorite movie this year. No, he liked kidding. it, didn't uh, he? He did like it. He did like it. So if you want to go hear why, go listen to our Dark Phoenix review. Um, well, uh, since I wasn't on an episode, let me give you my review. Moving on. <laughs> so next up, this is an exciting one. Uh, Joe Hill is writing and overseeing a new line of DC horror comics. Uh, this is called Marco and Sean News. Yeah, right. Uh, but we'll do our best to hold it down because I think it's interesting anyway. You, you know, I'm not a... Well, so if you don't know, Joe Hill is perhaps best known as a novelist uh, and, you know, also as the son of the legendary horror writer Stephen King. Um, but in the world of comics, he's known for his Eisner Award winning work on Lock and Key, which is a book that Marco has uh, been reading recently uh, thanks to uh, a fan sending him a few copies. And I know he's been really enjoying, um, which uh, he works on with artist Gabriel Rodriguez. It's been uh, obviously a very popular book and, and well-received. Uh, but now DC has tapped the writer to bring his voice to a new pop-up line of horror comics, which is going to be called Hill House Comics. Um, so I have a quote here. Uh, this was an exclusive article from Entertainment Weekly. They were the ones who, who broke the story. Uh, so I, they did a little you know, sit down with Hill, and I'll, I'm going to read some of his, uh, his yes. thoughts here. I've always been a comic book writer first. When I started writing comics, I felt almost instantly that I had discovered my element. It was the version of writing I liked best, I felt. Uh, or, I'm sorry, I felt when I worked in comics that my strengths were amplified, and the stuff I struggled with as a writer almost completely vanished. Working on Lock and Key was one of the most satisfying creative experiences of my life, but it's tremendously exciting to get back into it. Scripting again, working with artists, working with other writers. Working in comics is the closest you can get as a storyteller to feeling what it must be like to be in the Rolling Stones. That's a... I thought that was quote. a dope quote. Yeah, right? I mean, it's true, though, when you think about it. Like, we talk about how, like, you know, people should care more about the creators and stuff, but comics are the only, like, written industry where creators are rock stars. There are rock star comic book creators. I don't know any novelist. J.K. Rowling. That is J.K. Rowling, but, like, yeah, she made a Harry Potter, you know, which is, like, on the the level of fucking, like, Star Wars in terms of, like, cultural uh, penetration, you know? Whereas, like, somebody who's just a novelist that hasn't had one of their books turned into a, a you know, a multimedia empire, who else? Uh, it might be just a sphere that we're not as well-versed in, possibly. I mean, you're right about that, but I think the point is that, like, I don't know, like... You read books, though. Yeah, but... Like, I read books. I can name a few authors, but I don't think of them as, like, having celebrity status where they go to, like, Comic-Con and walk out to a room of a thousand people who scream, you know? It's because like, people don't read books. Well, yeah, but that's my yeah, point. Yeah, like, yeah. I think I think what he's saying is it's an interesting, it's, like, a weird quote, but I think it makes sense. Yeah, I think the only comparison are other people that have written, like, some popular series that haven't been turned into movies or something yet. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? Yeah, because, like, the other example I can think of is, like, George R. Sure, R. but Martin, he's a rock star, like, too. 
Right, exactly, because Game of Thrones had a TV yeah. show. Um, but there you are, know? there are, like, young adult novels that haven't been turned to movies that, like, made them, they're, they're popular among certain circles, obviously. Yeah, and I'm not saying that they're not popular, but I'm saying, like, I, and I, I, shit, I mean, he would know, right? Like, he's a successful I author. I can't believe he's like, 47 years old. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, yeah. I didn't know my that. My dude yeah, is he... around my dad's age. He's out here killing it, yeah. man. Uh, so, Hill House's initial offerings are going to have five limited series. I like that they're all limited. I think yeah. that's cool. Uh, Basketful of Heads, which is written by Hill and illustrated by Leo Max, uh, which is just it's like a one-name That's a cool name. Artist. I, Leo Max, yeah. I didn't know that was on, Never heard didn't of know that was on the table. My firstborn will be named Leo Max. <laughs> uh, the Dollhouse Family. Written by Mike Carey and illustrated by Peter Gross. The Low Low Woods, written by Carmen Maria Machado or Machado, and illustrated by Danny. Another one Machado. Yeah. Machado. Yeah, I would There's say Machado. There's a baseball player named Manny Machado. Okay, yeah, Machado. That looks right. Uh, Daphne Byrne, written by Laura Marks and illustrated by Kelly Jones, right. uh, and Plunge, written by Hill. Another one by him, uh, with an artist to be revealed at a later date. Each comic will also come with two-page installments of a backup feature called Sea Dogs, which will also be written by Hill, uh, which I thought was yeah. cool. Um, so if you want to jump over to the uh, the EW uh, article that I attached here, you can check out all of the um, – excuse me. You can check out all the covers, and they look pretty sick, I got to say. There's some dope-looking art here. Uh, and I've got some, I've got some, some like descriptions of the stories. If you want to hear them, Phil, we're both at that point in our lives where we are getting old and burping mid sentence. Yeah, hit me with those descriptions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so let's see. So uh, with the Dollhouse family, um, they're going to be exploring the life of Alice, who was gifted a big, beautiful dollhouse as a child filled with a magical family of dolls. As she gets older, Alice returns to the dollhouse with unexpected results. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. Oh my god, that's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> or the, or yeah, that that's... new horror movie, the, the one with the doll in it. Uh... Oh, They're advertising it like I know. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um... So then we've got Daphne Byrne, which is going to be set in the gaslit 1800s of New York, where the titular Daphne discovers a strange, insidious entity within her body. Uh, turns out it is um, Freddie Jones' baby. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's funny because, I don't know, that like... It sounds like it's definitely going to get into some, like, body horror stuff, and, like, I wonder if it's going to be some commentary on, like... Oh, uh, all the shit that's happening in the country right now? Abortion and stuff, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of... I mean, horror and science fiction both really lend themselves to hot social political issues. Absolutely. Uh, So then we've also got the, uh, like I said, the Lolo Woods was another one. That's a story about a Pennsylvania mining town afflicted by a mysterious plague that eats memories. That could be commentary, too, on how... So I, I've obviously lived in Pennsylvania for a long time. Uh, and 
just about an hour west of where I went to high school and where my parents live is a lot of these old coal mining towns. And I even interviewed for jobs out there. And they're like all ghost towns because all the young people that grew up uh, there move away because yeah. their core industry uh, is gone, which is like a big problem with a lot of like uh, Rust Belt cities in the Midwest where like all the, you know, uh, automobile plants were outsourced, so all these people like don't live in Detroit or St. Louis anymore or whatever. It's the same thing with the coal mining towns in uh, central Pe- uh, central Pennsylvania because there's no core industry there anymore. It's all it's very blue collar and it's a little run down. Uh, so it seems like there's more room for uh, social commentary of that forgotten small town kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Which is interesting. I think that definitely is you know. It's an issue that, that we're talking about a lot in this country right now. So, again, like, if, if we're guessing right about these, it seems like there's going to be a lot of room for some political commentary in these books, which is really cool. Um, like you said, horror is great for holding up a mirror to what's going on in society right mm-hmm. now. Uh, so then Hill, Hill himself talks about the books that he's working on, and there's some great quotes from the entertainment article, so I'm going to jump back to that. Uh, Hill's excitement is palpable as he gives EW the elevator pitches for the books he's writing. Basketful of Heads starts with a young couple house-sitting at a New England mansion filled with Viking artifacts. Coins, shield, even an axe. Then a storm hits and brings with it some home invaders, so the girl goes to hide. When she emerges, her boyfriend is nowhere to be found, but one of the assailants has stayed behind for her. And then, quote, in the fight that follows, Hill says, she reaches for an axe, and we learn that the axe has this supernatural power. It can lop off a head in a single stroke, but then the head keeps talking. So you get a grindhouse Rashomon as the heads stack up, and each of them tells their own version of what they've done and why they had to do it. Hill says he's been thinking about the idea for Basketful of Heads since about 2009, but only recently figured out how exactly he wanted to tell the story. It almost sounds like a Scott Snyder idea because uh, he's obviously doing that right now with this Batman book he's doing. With the Joker, but, like, yeah. It sounds very Scott Snydery, and that's not an insult. Mm-hmm. Scott Snyder is great with concepts. That's that's a backhanded compliment <laughs> if I've ever heard one. <laughs> huh? uh, then there's the plunge. Then there's the plunge, which Hill describes as quote my chance to riff on one of the greatest horror films of all time, John Com- John Carpenter's The Thing. That's uh, maybe the best horror movie ever made. I'm not saying it is, but it's in the conversation. Maybe. <laughs> like Carpenter's masterpiece, Plunge concerns supernatural events in. Oh, concerns supernatural events in the frozen north. Okay, that makes sense. I was like, that's a weird sentence. Uh, Back in the 80s, a highly advanced research vessel vessel went missing near the Arctic Circle, only to suddenly reappear 40 years later, now sending a distress signal. So a team of American researchers is sent to salvage the vessel, even as a wintry storm approaches. Hill teases what they find there. There's an oil on board. There's an there's oil on board with unusual properties. At the center of this ring island sunk in shallow waters is what appears to be the ruins of a prehistoric civilization. Most upsetting of all is that when the men who were on the research vessel emerge from the island's caves, their eyes have all been eaten away. They haven't aged a day, and they're capable of performing unfathomable mathematical feats. There's something terribly wrong with them, and the storm closes in. It this and then the storm closes. In. This is very similar to the thing in some respects, but then it also sounds like the new Godzilla movie a little bit with the underwater hmm, civilization yeah. thing. 
Uh, and it kind of sounds Twilight Zone-y. I can see that, yeah. Where, where it's like they go investigate the... Like, what happened? Yeah, yeah that's something yeah. Uh, unusual. Yeah, that's that's interesting, though. I mean, I'm interested in, in a couple of these titles, for sure. This this sounds like a good line. Um, then the last thing is uh, the Sea Dogs, which was that backup mm-hmm. story. Um, so, Sea Dogs is set during the American Revolution. Uh, it opens in 1779 with the British Navy dominant on the seas and the Revolution in danger of collapsing. Quote, the naval fleet is run by this 90-gun ship, and there's just nothing Americans could throw at it to destroy it. So they hit on this desperate plan, allow three American werewolves to be impressed on board, and then eat the ship from the inside out. That sounds awesome. Huh. <laughs> so it's like the game Werewolf. I guess. I like I, That makes me have a newfound appreciation for the title Sea Dogs. That's awesome. <laughs> that sounds if good. Called, if it was yeah. called Seaman, it would have a different connotation. Yeah, a Eating little the bit. ship inside out, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think I think this sounds great. I'm really excited for this title uh, for this imprint, and I think especially in light of last week's main topic about the end of Vertigo. And, you know, that being kind of like the home of horror comics at DC yeah. and stuff like, you know, Swamp Thing and Sandman and, and whatever, um, you know, and this like actually has some Vertigo talent is that here. Like, is that why Mark um, is not here this like, week? Because he's depressed? Yeah. We're eating crow. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, it's funny because last week we were like, oh, this is it. DC's moving away from creator own stories. They're not going to do stuff like that anymore. We were totally wrong. Um, yeah, it's just t- taking a different Vertigo's shape. Vertigo's gonna get revived eventually, anyway. I wasn't here last week, yeah, but probably. like, they'll bring it back. Uh, but like I said, there is some Vertigo talent here. So, like, I called out uh, Kelly Jones, who's working on Daphne Byrne. Um, she illustrated the season of Mists arc of the Sandman. Okay, and uh, we have Mike Carey and um, Peter Gross who uh, previously worked together on the original Lucifer yes, series I, that spun out yes, of Sandman. Um, so there's some OG uh, Vertigo talent actually working at this imprint as well, which is pretty cool in light of the shuttering of its doors uh, last week. Yeah, it's a great opportunity. Or it's upcoming. Uh, I, I'm really curious how it turns out. I'm sure Sean and Marco will be really on top of it. I'm not on top of anything, so they'll have to let me know how it is. I'd love to review these books oh, on the show. That, see that, cool. When we do that, it forces me to read it, so I'll definitely read it. Exactly. I'm, I'm trying to get us to do more reviews. Oh, I want, I'm, that's... we've been both thumping that Bible for some time. Yeah, yeah. It's a new initiative for me. Uh, so next up, we've got a serious topic, which is a, uh, a follow-up to an episode we did uh, back on... It was episode 133 of the Comics Pals back in May when we talked about the merging of Oni Press and Lionforge, uh, which, you know, ended up to a couple kind of high-profile... Uh, not firings, I guess, but layoffs yeah. of, of, of senior leadership, many of whom were um, people who, you know, came from marginalized It's been groups. a bad look. Um, yeah, it was a lot of people of color, a couple queer women... Uh, who were, you know, these people that were kind of being touted as, like, leading these smaller publishers into this era of, like, 
you know, being inclusive and being a place for, you know, um, POC and women and uh, LGBT people uh, to, you know, like be able to tell their stories. Um, And then we had all... Well, then we had all these firings and everything, and it was like all this, you know, this big problem. And, you know, then that, you know, in that episode, I know at least I personally expressed, and I know a few of the other uh, people on the show did as well, that we we hoped that that these were like short-term firings that were, you know, going to lead to like long-term growth of a platform for, for marginalized people and, you know, and voices. And I think... It seems like our good faith was definitely a little. Oh misplaced. no! What happened? Um, so this this week, uh, we we have an article from the Daily Beast um, that is a, a doozy that talks a lot about Oni Press and um, here's the headline: Right, Oni Press promised inclusive comics, then amid quote chaos, it shut out marginalized employees. The subhead is, even before a merger led to the firings of queer women and women of color, ex-employees describe a chaotic, uh, at times hostile, work environment at Oni Press. So, it it paints a very negative picture of of Oni Press and and kind of their culture. Um, but yeah, it's it's a bad look. Um. So let's let's get into it. Uh, the the first few paragraphs of this article. Um, this comes from Asher El- Elbin, like I said, over at the Daily Beast. Um, I, we kind of just caught you up on the story, so I'm gonna jump into the personal accounts from the ex employees. And I know, especially on this show, uh, Sean doesn't like to get in the habit of just reading an article, but this is very much like other people's accounts of these events, and I want to be careful to not misrepresent any of. Uh, the Oni employees who were brave enough to go on record and, and, you know, I don't, I don't want there to be any margin of error there. So we're going to read a lot of this. So I would really appreciate it if you would go down to the description and go give this Daily Beast article a click, uh, because we're going to be recreating a good amount. Uh, so, are there any kind of trigger warnings for listeners? Um, not, not anything like, not anything like that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I was just, li- I was just thinking of our listeners. Yeah, it, it, not anything that extreme. I wouldn't think. Um, it's it's definitely unfavorable, but it, but it's not anything that I think. Put on your sewage gloves. Would... We're going deep into the trash. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's start here from the article. Uh, it says Desiree Wilson came to the comics industry via an unusual route, starting out in the military before taking jobs that included emergency medical technician and nine one one dispatcher. After working as an editorial intern at Dark Horse Comics, she applied for an assistant editor position at Oni Press as a long shot and got hired. Oni was in flux when Wilson came on board, with editor-in-chief James Lucas Jones taking over as publisher and Ari Yarwood moving into the executive editor position. Yarwood declined to comment on the record for this piece, citing mental health. Wilson took over for editor Charlie Chu, who had been moved on to another position in the company. She was offered a starting pay of just $30,000 a year and a slate of 30 comics titles to manage, which included much of Chu's backlog. For reference, Wilson said, an editor position at a publisher like Simon & Schuster has a slate of 8 to 10 titles a year. Okay. There were a few systems in place, or I'm sorry, there were few systems in place of any kind at Oni, Wilson said. The office was chronically understaffed and heavy turnover and massive workloads falling on the remaining editorial and marketing employees. 
There was no HR department when she joined and no onboarding. In order to get trained, Wilson said, she eventually had to go over to choose house three times a week and eventually asked Yardwood if she could proceed herself. Um, Morales, go ahead. I, I listened to an NPR story recently um, about a woman who broke into like uh, it was like uh, like a metalsmith type occupation, which is extremely male domin- dominated. And she talked. To, and this was like twenty years ago, I guess, because she's she's middle aged at this point. But she talked about how her getting her foot in the door there was. It, sounded very reminiscent to that so uh, on its face i don't think it sounds great but even I, I think you and i can even sympathize with like the levels you have to go to to break into something that's a little inside like uh, exclusionary i guess you know what i mean yeah yeah absolutely um and i think you'll see that 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 pattern that you're starting to recognize it, it gets worse right. um Morale issues abounded. Recognition for accomplishment, such as an Eisner win for Tea Dragon Society, which Yarwood edited, was thin, Wilson said. And the extra work of keeping the office clean fell on female employees while male executives got themselves pulled off the cleaning rotation. <laughs> oh, boy. Women, yeah, women, including, quote, Ari and Melissa Manzaros, director of publicity, and I were doing the overwhelming work of keeping the office clean, making sure things were where they needed to be when they needed to be there, of planning, of celebrations, Wilson said. I don't think there was one time we celebrated as a group something that wasn't someone leaving. Yikes. Yikes. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was kind of insane to me how chaotic it was, said Rachel Reed, former Oni Press marketing manager. When she came on board in October 2015, the company didn't even have an official website. There were no systems in place. Nothing was archived. They never had marketing budgets. When I entered, I was thinking it was an entry-level job where I'm going to be learning comic book marketing, and I had to start figuring it out on my own. Yeah, that is troubling. Yeah, in 2015... Especially, yeah. that's years after they had success with Scott Pilgrim. They had money to hire that's people. Like, what are they very doing? Very troubling. Yeah, um, that's a red flag. And I mean, especially this shit with like, you know, senior level female executives are cleaning the office. It's like, what the fuck is that? You know, it's, like uh, very unusual for people that. And this is uh, this isn't meant to disparage custodians, but it's very unusual for companies to have like your like writers and editors or whatever the clean offices they usually contract another you know like a custodian company to do that for you for the building right uh it's like one thing if you were like talking about like a small startup or something you know like 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 the the company that i work privately for like we don't have like a trash removal service we have uh we have like a cleaner come once in a while but like a lot of the like basic stuff is like you know like people take turns or whatever it's like not a big deal but there's like 10 employees there it's not you know a big like and maybe oni press is not a ton of full-time employees but it's like you guys have a major motion picture based on one of your books that sold millions of copies worldwide and you have like licensing deals with like Nickelodeon and stuff. It's like you guys have enough money to like not have a senior publisher or editor 
like or marketing people and stuff like cleaning up the I, office. I, I don't. I don't it's, think it's especially if not everyone's pitching in. If it's just the fucking women doing it, it's like okay, like you're clearly just deciding you don't give a fuck and you're gonna just take advantage. Of I, people. I inherently believe that people should clean up after themselves and clean up after each other as like groups and communities and stuff. That we shouldn't have other entities do that for us but when it comes to like a corporation like their whole thing is profit margins they can shell out money to make sure that people live in a, that people are working in a clean environment uh so things went particularly downhill in march 2018 wilson said her relationship with one of the creators she managed soured with the writers shouting at her over the phone and refusing to communicate via email before finally telling her at a convention that he couldn't tell her apart from the other biracial black person oh, in the Oh, that's office. like HR right there. Yeah, but good thing they don't have yes. one. Um, Wilson made a complaint to Yarwood, who passed it up the chain. Both women also pushed Oni to hire an HR hey. But Wilson said that the company sat on the complaint for over a year. When trying to address the issue with publisher James Jones, she said she avoided taking action, insisting that the creator had just been joking and didn't mean it. That's always bad. Yeah, that's what you want your senior level leaders to be saying when there's an accusation of racism or sexism in the the office is to just be like, they were just joking. That's the kind of, yeah, that's Boys great. will be boys. And there's no HR department, so you have no other recourse. Oh, that's, awesome. That's bad. Yep. So I, I hope I hope that you listeners at home are realizing why I'm reading through this because it's like every paragraph there's Something. like you. Yeah, it's, there's content. Uh, in the aftermath of these events, Wilson said she felt ostracized from the office. She also began getting official feedback questioning her work performance. A month before the merger announcement, Wilson said she was told that her HR complaint had been addressed and that the writers she'd been having issues with would not have his contract renewed. Quote, I suspect the only reason they closed my HR case is because they knew I would have it over them if I tried to sue, Wilson said, in view of what happened later. They were tying up loose ends. I, we do not comp. Oh, another theory is that he didn't want to come back, and they were like, "Oh, we took care of it. We didn't renew his contract." Sure, yeah. Uh, we do not comment on personal matters as we are legally and ethically bound by obligation to privacy. Oni Press told the Daily Beast in a statement. We can confirm that as a result of the recent merger, we eliminated several positions as part of consolidating our two entities into a stronger organization going forward. This is an unfortunate but necessary part of that process, and we have heard the conversation by those affected and from the wider community as well. We disagree strongly with the unsubstantiated claims and inaccurate portrayals appearing online and in questions you've asked us to comment on. But before... Oh, but because of the aforementioned privacy boundaries, we cannot comment further. PR speak. What a PR defense, yeah. right? We categorically deny everything that's that you say is wrong about us, but we can't say why or how. Yeah, that's, because of privacy. That's, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Internal communications reviewed by the Daily Beast, including texts, emails, and chat transcripts, provided written records of Wilson's and other ex-employees' complaints to and exchanges with Onis at the time. So... Yeah, this is one of those things where I, I don't really think it's like a he said, she said. I think it's like a here's here's the facts and here's the Daily Beast as a third party corroborating them. And, and Oni Press is not interested in defending themselves. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where they just hope... That's pretty damning. I, Their silence is damning. I think it's damning. one of those things where they hope it just goes away. Which it probably will. that's how things work. Yeah. 
It's probably um, one of those things that it's damning in the short term because uh, they have no... I mean, it, it looks terrible, but their silence will also mean that people forget about it faster. Yep, absolutely. It's probably and, extremely uh, yeah, calculated. It's, yeah, and, and the fact that they're doing all of these things as they're preparing for this merger and everything, too, it's like, it definitely seems just like very... It's how... Business, it's how business was always done, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, when they're very much trying to like position themselves as like different than that. Yeah, well, that's that's always the thing, right? Um, uh, with with green energy and with June right now is Pride Month. Um, like these are vocally outspoken kind of issues that people care about they want people of lgbt communities to feel represented and to have the same rights and representations as as cisgendered people and all that stuff and people care about the environment and want to not have oil refineries and use more like energy efficient things but instead the corporate response of corporate America in large part, not universally necessarily, but in large part is to basically just capitalize off the trendiness of it. So instead of saying like, oh, we support LGBT rights, they'll sell a shirt that has a rainbow flag on it and then it just goes you know, to the company, the proceeds go to the company. Right. Or same thing with like that green movement, um, you buy an energy efficient light bulb, but it still goes to the same company and... Like at the end of the day, it's just something for a company to latch onto to make more money. Yeah, and you know, and it sucks. I, I think, yeah, and it sucks because I think that's clearly what we saw that's, here that's too, why right? I like, it I mean, up. yeah, yeah. The, and then the next portion of the article, I'm just gonna skim a little bit here because it's very much rehashing the story that we reported on. Back on uh, on episode 133. Yeah, so if you want to go read the original story, or again, you can go check out the Daily Beast article. Like, I'm not going to... This isn't the uh, account anymore, so... Um, but, you know... The, this is the last point I'm going to read before we can get a little bit summary, and then we'll jump ahead. Uh, the rumblings of a merger began a while before the official announcement, Wilson said. There had been interest in some sort of deal from Lionforge, a company founded in 2011 by two black men, animator Carl Reed and marketer David Stewart II. Uh, the company's comics catchphrase was, quote, comics for everyone, and, di- and the diversity of both characters and creative staff was its primary selling point. When the merger was formally announced, it came with news that Oni's James Lucas Jones would be taking over as president and publisher of the new company with Oni editorial team leading, quote, creative and business operations. Polarity, Lionforge's parent company, would hold the majority stake. So uh, then it talks about how uh, the beat, which is a, a, a website that's also owned by Polarity, suggested the goal of the merger was to create a more robust line of comics and graphic novels as well as to help both companies leverage their characters to other media platforms, including animation and film, uh, as Polarity had already had plans to launch an animation studio, which was something that we talked about when we talked about this originally, where it was like, okay, this makes sense, right? Like, they have this, you know, more traditional media background. Oni's got, you know, a more... 
grounded comics background. The merging of these companies makes a lot of sense. It'll make both of them stronger. Da 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 da. And I mean, here we are, though, right? Like, it it it, it seems like it seems like their whole selling of comics for everyone. We're gonna have this diverse group of creators and leadership was all rah rah bullshit to to cash in on the cachet of like like woke vertising or something you know like like you said with like it's like putting out a pride shirt and pocketing all the money you know and like that's what this fucking feels like woke vertising is a good way to put it i mean these these companies see a demographic and they're trying to sell to them basically but it's such a it's such a double-sided sword i think because typically i think the woke crowd is the most intense and i think if you fuck up and they see through it you're fucked because they will they will boycott and they won't go back yeah yeah i i agree i think um it's interesting because like uh, the internet never forgets but people do a lot, but it's one of those things where that's, like, a thing that happens a lot where you'll see, like, these companies try to come back and it's like, oh, remember this really shady, shitty thing you did back then? We don't forgive you, you know? Um, and, yeah, I think, like, I think they really probably shot themselves in the fucking foot here. Comics, comics are inherently fringe, but in, in, in its fringe, it's attracted a lot of people who feel like, you know, outcasts or, or mm-hmm. pariahs. I think that's the big appeal of it to a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, and it's created a great sense, a larger sense of community for a lot of people. And so when you basically raise a middle finger to that community and you're a publisher, you have to be thinking your audience are just masochists like the WWE audience does. <laughs> um, yeah, it's the whole thing is just terrible. It's a huge bummer. Um, I hope the people afflicted are able to bounce back on their feet other uh, elsewhere in, in, in the industry and, you know, continue to prosper, frankly. Yeah, and that's that's the, the unfortunate part is, uh, as the ad- article points out, uh, all told, nine people were laid off from Lionforge and only Oni Press, largely without apparent warning. At Oni, Wilson, the one black editor at the company, was the sole editor fired. Scott Sharkey, who worked part-time in the Oni warehouse and is Wilson's partner, was also let go, as was Melissa uh, Mezaros, Oni's director of publicity, who had suffered a brain injury from a car accident in 2018 and was left to crowdfund money for medical and rehab costs. Oh, that's brutal. At least two of those laid off, including Wilson, had accessibility requests or accommodation with Oni under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Quote, it feels very targeted, Desiree said. You trim staff in a merger because it's harder to prove that you are discriminating when you fire people. And I believe that's what's happening. I believe that too. Yeah, uh, certainly there are two sides to every story. I, I, it sure sounds damning. Yeah. I, uh, and their radio silence on the issue. I mean, how can there be two sides to a story when one side of the story doesn't exist? Yeah, and, and it's, uh, you know, I think the thing about this that uh, is so, like, 
the more that comes out about it, the more apparent it is that that it's been it's been an ongoing problem for a long time. And it's like you know, I was willing to put you know uh, to give them the benefit of the doubt when this story broke, and like I was totally wrong to give them that faith, you know, because like I think. On some level, I want to still believe that people have good intentions, you know, and, like, to try to take people at face value. But, like, man, you can't fucking trust – you can't trust a company. Ever. You can never, you can't trust anybody ever like trust this. a company. Like, that's the thing at the end of the day is that corporations operate with with not the best intent in mind. Like, they're – At the very least, American corporations. Yeah, right? like, that's Western our frame of reference, right? And, and yeah. like, you can, like, their whole thing is profit first. And, like, if this this corporation, their entire point of trying to talk about this inclusivity sounds like it was all based off trying to capitalize on what they saw as probably something trendy. And they didn't back it up with any of the actual moral politics involved. And right. That's, like, an indictment of, like, pretty much most major companies. And it's not a major company. But... This, this is a microcosm of most companies in the country. Yeah, it's... Uh, so, I, I... It's like... I don't know. It's just so disappointing, like, how insanely hypocritical this entire thing is, you know? Like... Like, there's a quote here from, from Reed, one of the co-founders, right, who said, who's responding to the criticisms in, a, in an interview with Sci-Fi, saying the narrative of our entire mission is focused on new perspectives, different voices, and expanding what comics are and who reads about them. Not only are we personally comic creators, but we're African-American comics creators. And when you're a leader in diversity and you let somebody go, and the majority of your employees are minority and women, no matter what happens, it can be perceived a certain way. And, like, I'm not trying to, like, throw Reed under the bus here, but that's not representative of, what, of, of like, Oni. Yeah. You know, like, say what you will about Lionforge, but, like, Oni is the one who I think comes out looking really shitty here, you know? And uh, the there's this other thing here where it says, in the merger's press release, executive staff at Oni put out several statements underscoring their commitment to diversity inclusion. But news of the layoffs provoked public shock and anger online, with many pointing out that the layoffs at both Oni and Lionforge had disproportionately fallen on women and people of color staff. Um... Reports that the combined company would be run out of Portland and that the li- at the staff at Lionforge, which had previously had the option to work remotely, would have to move also raised serious concerns. Concerns. Portland is not only, quote, severely unaffordable, unquote, it's also got a well-earned reputation for racism. I've been called things on the subway, Wilson told the Daily Beast. I've seen my black friends get attacked. I've seen them called the N-word while they're walking into their studio, minding their own or minding their business. You're not going to find a person of color who hasn't had an experience of being called something bad. Yeah. You know, so it's like all of these things like just don't like it adds up to see to seem like what you're saying is PR, that it's a PR response and that like the like like here, like here's Oni. Oni's core values and the contributions that our creators and staffers or people of color, disabled or queer have made over the past 20 years speak for themselves. Every day, we live our commitment to a culture of diversity, inclusion, and equity for all members of our team and our creative community. That's bullshit though, man. Like that sounds like you're like, oh, I have black and queer and disabled friends. I can't be yeah. a bigot. And it's like, man, like you put this person who needed 
medical care, severe, you know, severe medical care, like out on the street. You just you fired the one black editor on your team. Like, how can you say that you have that these are your values and then you do those things? Like, there was an issue where someone was met with, you know, homophobia, and you said it was a joke. Like, that's not you showing that you have a pattern of. Like, you're saying, oh, their contributions speak for themselves. Yeah, theirs do. Your leadership doesn't. Yeah. Uh, ain't you a- know, like, you're not you're not looking out for your employees. Yeah, man. Uh, companies are made up of the employees, not the bosses. Uh, if all the workers put their hands in their pocket, nothing will get done. Um, and this is another microcosm of a company that, you know, this is run by idiots. Yeah, and it's it's just really disappointing. Um, really, really disappointing yeah. because, uh, like, it's I an don't indictment know. of the whole thing. Like it's it, terrible. Yeah, it really is, especially just because, like, I don't know. Like, I, <laughs> I, I really don't. I want there to be – like I wanted this merger to be a good thing. I wanted these two companies to come together and be able to be a larger voice in the industry and be a bigger platform for the kinds of stories that they claim they want to tell. And at the end of the day, it's just another bunch of people like trying to sell something. And it's so disappointing because like you're right that the workers are not – like their, I think, effort and their dedication to that mission was because. Sure, People that make up the heart of anything are usually like they're they're the putting all the work in, so their heart's in it. So like, if you work at Oni Press and you hear this message of inclusion and diversity and all these wonderful things, and you put that kind of heart in your work, like of course you're gonna believe that because like it's just a normal ass person. But the people at top, they just see a profit margin, and when it comes to trying to pay someone's medical expenses, especially if they're a person that's of uh, uh, you know, higher need because they have more severe disability issues. They see them as a liability. Yep. And and it's uh, th- this this is the last quote um, that I that I want to pull pull from this article, uh, and then and then we can I guess offer some final thoughts. Uh, now that the combined Oni Lion Forge is attempting to position itself as a larger player in the comics industry held by many of those who were in charge at Oni during its chaotic early 20 years, a certain amount of scrutiny around its internal culture, including who it decides to fire and how it decides to fire them, is to be expected. And when those let go include the company's sole black editor, as well as a woman with a brain injury who is seeking medical accommodations, amid a wider round of layoffs and departures that have largely affected marginalized creators, it's no surprise that people are angry. And, yeah, like, I I agree with that sentiment. That, like, it... It's really, really disappointing. It's a crazy gamble on our end to do so many faux pas in the corporate sphere because this is not a large company at all. Any kind, no, any kind of it's... boycott could seriously jeopardize their profit margins. Yeah, and I mean, especially because like I think they've 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 kind of like been caught with their pants down, and they really fucked themselves now because I think their whole message of you know inclusivity is bull is bullshit. So like I think you're right that the you know that crowd is probably going to stop supporting their books. Um, excuse me. And on top of that, the other side of the industry, like or the fan base, right, like loathes 
that kind of subject matter or that message. So who's going to buy their books? Oh, man, I... Oof, I don't like that eventuality. I mean, you could be right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, that type of audience gets off on, on hate buying things. Well, I, I, that's what I mean is I don't think that they'll cater to them. I'm just saying that I don't think that they'll buy their stuff either because oh, they've been oh, oh. presenting this message. I think they're going to be like, haha, like, fuck you. That's what you get oh, for. Yeah, they'll probably interpret it as. Know? So I, I think I, I think the reality is that no one's going to buy they'll, their books. They'd, they'd interpret that as uh, a win. They'll, they'll interpret it as like, see, inclusivity doesn't sell. Because yeah. that was the whole thing after the Marvel canceled a ton of their uh diversity books oh, that demographic of people were like ha 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 see uh, diversity doesn't sell you're catering to people that don't read comics yeah so I don't know man it's, it's uh, this is a really disappointing one and I, I wish that the rest of the, the crew had been here to discuss it so that we could have gotten everyone's opinion since this is an update from a previous story yeah. but you know it was it was one we had to touch on um, well, and it's sure yeah. It's one that really, really bring, b- brings me I'm down. I'm sure there will be more on this uh, in the coming weeks. I hope there I don't is. I this is punctuated yet. I, I hope that's the truth. I really hope that it isn't going to just be something that goes away because... Yeah, I mean... You know, to Sean's, to Sean's point, a lot of times these stories come out, there's outrage, and then nobody follows up on it. And at the end, at the end so of the day, it's a small company. If this was Marvel or DC, yeah. you know, you'd hear about it for a while. Yeah, we'll have to see if this really shakes their their margins, and I think that's when we're going to hear about yeah. this again. Yep. Uh, so to pull us out of that really disappointing news, it's time for my favorite my favorite new segment, which you haven't experienced oh, yet, no. Phil. It's time for this week on Rob Liefeld's Twitter. Ooh, a new segment. <laughs> oh, all right, friend of the show, Robert Liefeld. Friend of the show who blocked that's us on Twitter. That's so funny. Uh, so, <laughs> on June 25th, 2019, at 11.53 a.m., Robert Liefeld, on Twitter, posts, in all caps, uh, well, okay, here's what I'll do. When it's in all caps, oh, I'll yell. Oh, is the DC story? Okay. No. That was uh, last okay, week. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Or two weeks oh ago, actually. God. That was when that came up. And then the week after that, I brought up another. I was like, I want to just start reading his tweets oh, every week because yeah. he was just dunking on people, and I was like, every week we got to find awesome. one and read one. So I'm, I'm. This is the third week in a row. I think it's an oh, official segment. Now. I actually kind of like this. So here's what he says: It was 28 years ago today. Dot 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 dot. June 25th, 1991. X Force. 5 million copies on the Avengers Endgame of comics or the Avatar, depending on how it all shakes out. All of these sentences have exclamation points at the end. Anyways, the number two best-selling comic of all time is an dot, 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 dot. And then it's just a picture. What was the picture of? The It's just a picture of the... Oh, wait, no, no, there's more on Instagram. Oh, this is a cross post. It's a new segment this week on Rob Flyfeld's Instagram. Okay, so what did he say? Okay, anyways, the number two best-selling comic of all time is an honor I will happily cheer about. No Spider-Man, no Wolverine, no Avengers. This book was fueled by brand new characters that had not been unleashed on the comic scene just as yet. Cable, Deadpool, Domino. 
and they took off with audiences and sword as a result of you. <laughs> dude. And it's, oh my god, it's still he, just going, he lives and going, the gimmick. And going. He's a dude, walking yeah. 90s comic book man. Uh, you bought this book in droves. We went to a second printing. It's like, it literally feels like he's cutting a promo. Thank you. This book and these characters changed my young life. I was 23. They became toys, cartoons, and video game characters. And finally, box office blockbusters. The weirdest thing is, I just purchased an Italian X-Force edition last night at a manga comic store my son located. This takes me so far back. If you think for one minute I'm not going to toot my own horn here, let me inform. Up front, there isn't possibly enough horns for me to toot today i will toot them all my dude's a goddamn legend <laughs> holy shit this guy is counting a promo so congratulations robert liefeld second best book sell of all time x-force wow my man's you, a buddy. legend my man oh, is a legend shit. i didn't know how cool he was go check out my interview yeah, me with neither him. yeah go check it out youtube.com oh the damn class. My dude's extra as hell. <laughs> All right, so uh, back to the serious oh, news. Bitch. This is this is a cool one though. So Boom and Comic Comic Hub are set to collaborate on a uh, a new consumer marketing program for uh, the new Boom book, Once and Future, which is uh, being worked on by Karen Gillian and Dan Mora, who yeah. are. Uh, creators that marco in particular is a huge fan of isn't sean a karen gillian fan as well yeah um so this is a really exciting news announcement and i think we might have covered the original comic hub news i couldn't find it but um so this this is from uh icv2.com uh by milton grip this is another exclusive so i'm gonna read a little bit of it here and there just to catch you up um so Essentially, though, this is – Comic Hub is going to be having a new platform, right, where the core of the program revolves around the fact that Comics Hub – or Comic Hub, excuse me, is a tool allowing comic stores to take orders from customers via a mobile app or website. The 69 stores using the app, uh, as this was written, is a modest number. The 30,000-plus registered consumer users is more impressive. Yeah, that's a – So – uh, the marketing program for once and future, uh, in the marketing program, excuse me, targeted emails and in-app ads will be directed at customers likely to buy once in future. Customers will be able to order with their retailer from either type of message. This messaging will begin as pre-orders are solicited and can continue after release. Once the co- first comic issue is released, additional marketing will support the sell-through. The Comic Hub platform tracks available inventory and makes that information available to consumers looking for a specific title. In this case, that information will be used by Boom Studios to geo target social media advertising sending consumers to stores that have the comic in stock boom studios president of publishing and marketing flip sellback explained how this part of the program will work quote we'll be able to click within comics hub go in, or comic hub i keep doing that i'm sorry uh go into once in future number one and go great he said we can see that on the east coast it's in stock in philadelphia and washington and north carolina in the following stores we can get very specific at very affordable rate and use the power of our quarter million followers on facebook twitter and instagram to actually drive customers into those stores 
this is fucking brilliant, dude. This is what me and Marco are always mm-hmm. talking about, about how they got to innovate the way that they're marketing comics. This is this awesome. Is very, they're doing targeted ads this for is books. very ambitious. Really ambitious. Uh, the only reason I'm a little apprehensive is because we've heard ambitious ideas for book distributions before. And oh, sure. they don't always follow through as well as the press release indicates. But on paper, it's a great idea. This is definitely the kind of thing you and Marco are, are always uh, banging the drum on about. Uh, and if they can do this geo-targeted uh, like book releases for its audience, that's a great idea. Yeah, and I think... I think what's interesting to me about it is it's a bold strategy, but I think the reason I feel really bullish about it is because it's not trying to reinvent the wheel as much as it is trying to optimize existing systems. And I feel like that's always easier to do. Sure, of course, because you don't have to lay out a new framework, a new blueprint. Right. Or sell people on something that they're not doing already. Uh, if, If they can pull this off, it could really help their margins. And uh, this is an interesting wrinkle Boom's, to it uh, here Boom's as well. Boom's been a riser too the last couple of years. Yeah, they really have. And and there's a there's an angle to it here that's uh, that's interesting as well, where it says Boom also has strategies in place to support higher inventory levels in retail stores by cutting retailer risk. Each issue of Once in Future will be affidavit returnable without minimum orders or limits on numbers of returns through the Boom Guarantee Program in which about 500 stores are participating. So essentially, between this, like it, it just seems like Boom is really getting smart about trying to use data to drive where people are actually reading their books and making sure that there's enough of them there. Yeah, I'm, I mean, we all know. Smart. It's really Marco's smart. a data boy. I wish he was here to talk about it. Like I said, this is a very Marco-heavy episode. Comics, numbers, dork shit, we need them. I never thought we'd say that, that we need Marco, but here we are. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I never thought I'd say I missed you, but after three weeks, shit. Hey, hey. distance makes the heart grow f- f- fonder. <laughs> well, this episode is fun because it's like it's like I'm getting you're you're like a shot of of like cheap whiskey, <laughs> you know. Um, but when it's just the two of us, it's like I get a couple ice cubes in there to water it down. Because <laughs> you, you can't be as on. Oh, I you know. know. I, I, I I have to be an integral participator in the conversation because yeah instead i don't have to dunk a couple words in uh to flavor <laughs> a conversation when we have you and sean who are, and kale who are very conversation heavy so i have yeah. to really pull my weight for once <laughs> but no i mean i am also a big fan of trying to use actual empirical data to try to like prove things uh, just optimize services. The one thing I never talk about on this show, because why would I, is I am a big ice hockey fan. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a there's a big division in professional sports that's emerged this decade of these guys who get into sports with a lot of empirical data. Like, they do, like, hard math to figure out which yeah. players are good and which players are bad. Uh, it's called analytics. And your old baby boomer sports guys and their kids too by extension all hate that stuff because it's like the eye test is all i need and your eye test can be different from someone else's eye test so even in comics or in any kind of field that where they're especially when you're a smaller company like boom 
when you actually rely on empirical data to improve something, to improve your sales, like a sports team would improve their team by actually relying on analytics to improve their team with better players, then you actually see, you know, uh, profit margins. You see actual gains. And I think I think that Boom is also the, the fact that like their whole because this article gets into this whole thing about how their whole company motto is that they want to be the most uh like the most the best partner that they can be to their retailers, right? So there's a couple quotes here from their leadership I want to get into uh that that support what you're saying here, Phil. Um, but I think it also adds another element to it where they're not just using numbers. They're they're winning by like kind of having like a grassroots oh, sort of – Love it. Like like working to be a good publishing partner oh, so that like it. everyone's benefiting. They're not succeeding by fucking their corporate oh, partners. Not bad. You know? Um, so like it's like I, I called out before, right? Like they have their their Boom Guarantee program that they use with with that five hundred different stores. So it says here, Boom will also market Comic Hub to its Boom Guarantee stores with an offer that gives those retailers a hundred dollar discount on the Comic Hub startup fee. So it's like all three of you know the partners in this system are trying to work together and save everybody a little bit of money and maximize profit so that there's not waste. Yeah. You know, and like that's it's just smart. You know. Um, yeah, so this was the other thing too, right? On the back end, Boom will be able to see the sell-through information on once in future collected by Comic Hub so it can see if the marketing worked. Comic Hub spokesperson uh, Adam Freeman explained the process. And you know what's really cool? His name is Adam Freeman, but I think he legally changed his first name to Adam, like A-T-O-M with an exclamation point. What a god... That's a baller. goddamn nerd. Yeah. Uh, the fact that publishers can now see what the sell-through is on any given issue in my time in working in publishing. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. The fact that publishers can now – no, it is. It is. It's one of those weird quotes where it's someone talking and it's so hard to read because, like, you expect it to have the cadence of a written statement. So, okay. Just walk with me on this one. The fact that publishers can now see what the sell-through is on any given issue. In my time working in publishing, I can tell you that had we had that information, it would have been a game changer. You can see what effect your marketing, your announcements, and your promotions are having both on the pre-orders and then after the book comes out. It's incredibly, incredibly powerful. I would like to note that we do everything we can up to and including keeping it from me keeping it from me what the individual stores are selling. That's so weird. I don't understand what that means. But we can, we only aggregate – oh, no, I see. Okay, we only aggregate the data. As a publisher, you can only really see what your effect is having on the whole. So it, it basically like Comic Hub seems like – and I think if Boom can prove that this works, other publishers will bite. If, if they can give you actionable data so you can tailor what – where where you're sending your books and reducing you know the risk on on comic book shops and and retailers like that's a win-win waste basically yeah it's like you know what this this lois lane book is not selling in in the midwest midwest but it's selling like crazy in metropolis missouri uh, uh, illinois for some reason because metropolis haha but yeah, you can right. you could literally ship out your non A list tier uh, tier books to uh, specific geographic locations. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, something that I was going to bring up in the show this week but didn't was um, Dish put out their, like, annual, like, survey of, like, who the most popular superheroes are in each state or whatever. And it's like, that could totally happen where there'll be a regional hit where it's like, yeah, maybe they, maybe the Midwest as a whole isn't vibing on this Lois Lane book, but if Illinois is, well, great. Make sure Illinois has enough fucking yeah, copies. Exactly. You know, like, and that's awesome. Like, that's brilliant. Yeah, what if, like, the Blue Beetle, who uh, is a character that uh, is from Texas or Mexico, I can't which, but, he, you know, it, the the yami yami rays version uh of that book selling really well because you know the characters from that area and you strip a bunch of titles there right um but yeah just last note i want to point out here just to like commend boom for how they're like handling this whole thing and what they're trying to do here and like you know um give credit where credit is due right uh this is another another statement from um Adam! Uh, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. This, this... <laughs> oh, wait. Is it? Hold on. I, I, oh, said, I'm sorry. I said I his name to... the way he wants to be, be said. Adam! <laughs> Just like, boom! <laughs> um. Okay, no, so it is. This is still Adam, I guess. Uh, oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. This is Sablik, who's who's um from Boom. This is one of the Boom reps. Uh, so, o- over the last five, six years, Boom has really made an effort to be the direct market's best partner in terms of how we support the retailers, how we engage with them, how we reduce their risk. We came to them this year at Comics Pro and again at the Diamond Retailer Summit and said, look, change is difficult and it's risky, but it requires that people in the position of making that change happen uh, take those steps. And I think what he's saying is true. It's powerful. Like, this is a real chance to improve the way that the direct market works and if they can do that they might they might save the direct market there's a there's a crazy thought huh yeah like this is one of those things where i've always been the one saying that the direct market is going to die but if they can use data to make comic book stores more profitable by not having to buy a bunch of books that they don't know are going to sell like that would change the whole fucking yeah there's 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 less energy lost um you could make small publishers more profitable yep. too because they're not wasting resources. Exactly. You know, and they could take risks on books that they don't think will sell as well because they'll know like, well, it'll, it might hit in California. Like, whatever, cool. Like, we'll, we'll do that. You know, like, I don't know. Like, this, this could be a real game changer. And you're right to be cautious about it because we see stuff like this all the time that we get excited about and it goes yep. nowhere. But I, again, I think the fact that it's just trying to improve the existing system, not do something totally new that's what makes it have a bigger chance yeah, uh there's there's uh, cautious optimism here for sure yeah and i think boom could be the company to do it so they've been making good moves these last couple years and they're they i, I feel like it seems like their leadership is pretty forward thinking yeah, yeah but they're also pretty realistic about the way the market works so like i don't know they maybe they're the ones to do it i hope so because I, I think Boom's pretty cool. They do some good stuff. Yeah, they, they recognize they're not as they're not even image in terms of popularity. And so they use no. their resources calculatedly and carefully. And it, it definitely seems like they're trying to innovate. Yeah, you gotta respect it. Yep. So uh, I hope it works out for them. I, I wish them all the best on this one. All right. So moving into our uh, main topic for this week. I, uh, I was, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie to you, pals. I was putting the show together because our own Sean is, is away. 
um, enjoying himself somewhere in the ether. And I was struggling to choose a main topic because I felt like the, you know, boom stuff, while interesting, it's a topic we've talked about many times before and it didn't feel like main topic worthy. I knew the only press piece would be mostly us reading and I didn't want to end on, a, on such a down note. So I thought, why not go to Reddit? What are people talking about? What do we got? Anybody, anybody have any good ideas for me? And I found a discussion that I thought would be fun for us to have, Phil. It would have been great to get everybody else's opinions on this one, too. Were they but... sexist or racist on there? Oh, they were not. Cool. Surprising. Our comic book's nice community, um, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so this one came from Longer No Human. Oh, what happened uh, to them? I don't know. But the question is, what, some, what something... You love about DC comics that Marvel don't have, and vice versa. So not great grammar, but I thought it was a, it was a it was a fun question. Well, it's like a Yahoo Answers. It is, it is, and that's you know I thought I figured it'd be good for our our main topic this week, Phil. Just you and me, a nice light topic to end the show, uh, and and one that works. You know, sounds like it could have been right from the pages of Yahoo Answers, our favorite publication. <laughs> <laughs> what DC has that Marvel doesn't have, I'll tell you right now. Grant Morrison. <laughs> yeah, I'll they give you that. For a little bit. And they've never really like, yeah, it's never. He he hasn't done much work with New them X-Men at all. Was amazing. He did Marvel Boy. He did a Fantastic Four book that wasn't great. Other than that, that's all I can think of. Hmm. So that's a, that's one that immediately springs to mind. I think for me, the the number one thing that sticks out. Uh, that I like about DC over Marvel, um, because I would say by and large I, I I prefer the Marvel universe, and I I like Marvel's characters more. Um, it's just a little bit more. It might be just because that's what sure. I grew up with, but I think it's also just because their aesthetic has always spoke to me a little bit more. Like I I like that. Like I always liked that. Like kind of what started with the Fantastic Four, you know, where it was that more personal approach, you know? Like, I feel like a lot of the DC characters are very, like, larger than life, and the Marvel heroes are, are a lot more just kind of, like, regular people in extraordinary circumstances, more or less. And, like, the more science element versus a lot of the, I think, more, like, fantasy stuff that you find in, in DC, or even, like, a lot of the science stuff feels more magic-y. You know, like, there's a more, like, I guess, like, a grand sense to the DC universe, where I feel like a lot of the Marvel stuff, like, it feels, like, Stanley seemed to deliberately design his characters in the 60s to accidentally get their powers and explain it away with science fiction. Uh So, like, the Incredible Hulk, you know, was obviously a gamma accident, gamma radiation accident. Um, the Fantastic Four went into space and they had some kind of cosmic accident. Uh, Spider-Man gets bitten by a radioactive spider. a lot spider. of that, you know? Uh, right, yeah. And I, I, I kind of prefer that. Whereas, in general, know, originally, Alan Grant... <laughs> that's the... <laughs> 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 Jurassic Park... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what did he? What did he write for DC, Phil? Uh, he he wrote a paleontology book. 
uh, no, the original Green Lantern. Um, it's bad because I want I right, he to was, say Ray Allen. He actually, was magic. He was a former NBA player. Alan Scott, he found a magic yeah. lamp. Um, you know, like a lot of the JSA was like, all, like you know, Captain Marvel. He got his powers from a wizard. So there's just a lot of ma- obviously Wonder Woman's rooted in mm-hmm. mythology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of those core pathos characters uh, got their powers <laughs> through supernatural circumstances, like the paranormal, magical stuff. Uh, and then even in the Silver Age, I think a big distinction that a lot of people typically seem to make, uh, you know, those DC characters, well, Barry Allen may have gotten his powers from a lab experiment. Um, he was still pretty much like a paragon of what, like, what a 1950s guy should be. He had, a, a, like, a wife or a girlfriend, and they had, like, a very happy domesticated life. He was extremely good-looking, and that's true for a lot of those 50s JLA characters, with, including Hal Jordan. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of the core themes of, of Spider-Man back then is that this is an everyday guy from Queens who uh, is struggling to balance his life out. He's down on his luck. But you know what? I, I think a lot of that is blurred nowadays. I agree with that, but I, I think when I think of them in broad ways, that's how I feel about it, you know? Um, but I, I would say I something I prefer about DC is I think that um, they... I like that they do more comics... Especially now as an adult, they do more comics that speak to the way that I like to read comics. Yeah, I, and I feel that way too. You know, like, they do they do a lot of miniseries and, like, graphic novels, or, you know what I mean, like, like just, just non-serialized books that are, like, out of, uh, you know, cont- continuity or, you know, just whatever. Like, I feel like if I was trying to, like, if somebody was, like, get me into, like, I want to read a Batman book. It's so much easier to just hand them something and be like, enjoy this, than if somebody's like, I want to read, you know, like, the definitive Spider-Man book. It's like, there are a few examples, but but it's not, like, Spider-Man's their most popular character. So, like, for somebody more obscure, I feel like there are less books like that there are less books like your visions or your like magneto testaments versus like i could name like rattle off like 10 batman books like that off the top of my head you know or superman or you know like any of their you know more a tier characters like generally have stuff like that that you can jump yeah into. it's an ind- it's an interesting publishing kind of decision and if we're talking about the kind of broader stereotypes of marvel and dc the reputation that they developed is that DC is where writers go and Marvel is where artists go. I think that's blurred mm. now as well, but that was the certainly the trope yeah. of the 80s and 90s. Um, and it shows because there's so many, as you put it, these great standalone books that came out of DC in that time uh, that you don't really see in Marvel. Now, Marvel has a ton of great runs. So does DC, though. Like, uh, you can point to, you know, the Thor run from the 80s, or Jason Aaron's run right now, uh, the Walter Simonson sure. run from the 80s, that is. Um, but you can do that with George Perez's Wonder Woman from the 80s. Um, you can do that with um, John Byrne's Superman. Like the, Both companies are, have been able to yield significant runs in its in their histories. Yeah. You can go back to Neil Adams and, and Danny O'Neill's Batman and or Green Lantern and the Green Arrow run from the 60s and 70s, 
So, uh, I don't think that's... Yeah, I feel like I'm more speaking to... No, I know. I'm, I'm saying like... that, like, they both have long runs, but I think you're right when DC... Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I was just making a clarifying point that I think they both have this one thing in common, but I think you're right in that DC yields more short-term output stories that are memorable. And, like... And I feel like DC's braver in the, or at least historically has been braver in some of their publishing in terms of like Marvel was good at pushing boundaries in their monthlies, but like there's like I don't there's no Marvel equivalent to like Watchmen. Sure. You know? Like yeah. and their attempts their attempts at equivalence to things like a Vertigo or even like the Hanna Barbera stuff that they publish or, you know, whatever has been Marvel like Marvel Knights. Right, and, and like, I feel like they've been a mixed success. Like, Marvel Knights was dope and worked well. There was, like, the Max imprint for a little while, which mm, was good but didn't really go anywhere. Um, or at least I remember it being good when I was an edgy 16-year-old, right? Um, but then they had, like, Icon, which was going to be their big, like, creator imprint that they, like, published Kick-Ass out of, and I think, like, one volume of Powers or whatever. And it's, like, there's just, like, not that same initiative to publish those kinds and, and, of books and it's attracted uh, a lot of really good talent to be able to do things like that whether it who, who like for a lot of people that are even somewhat aware of comic books not like people that are loosely aware but people that have like some familiarity they've read Watchmen. you know what i mean like they yeah. if you say like who are the who are the most who are like the best writers in comic book history I think you get the same three names most of the time, or same four names, I guess. And most, and most of these guys are primarily DC guys, which are Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Neil Gaiman, and Frank Miller. Frank, Mal Frank Miller obviously did stuff with DC. He's more remembered for Marvel stuff outside of The Dark Knight Returns. But uh, those three guys mostly cut their teeth in Vertigo. Those three other guys, I mean, other than Frank Miller. Yeah. Um, and I think the fact that Marvel never had a similar initiatives is is why like they just don't have a similar um set of books i guess to come to compare yeah, does, that do way. they have anything that really resembles sandman for instance or swamp no. thing i mean they have man thing but that was what i think that was steve gerber and his run is nowhere near as well remembered as as out Moore's swamp thing obviously is there anything like no. animal man by grant morrison like this is all that same late 80s early 90s concentrated stuff from vertigo right and what marvel was dealing with was their main artist preparing to bolt for image creating image and i think the thing is too like they have books that are like on that level that are that quality that are you know like th those those books exist but there there's not the same volume of them you know like 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 we read like craven's last oh, hunt terrific. like craven's Look. last hunt is up there in terms of like uh, an example of what makes the 80s that wave of like you know the move to a more, more modern comics um, that's one of the books that you name in that conversation but that's one of the books that you name in those conversation I would say the two books that probably you name are Watchmen Dark Knight and, Returns uh, and right Dark Knight Returns um, so I feel like that that is significant yeah you know and that, that's the thing that um I've always been a Marvel guy over a DC guy historically, but I also 
always read those kinds of books from DC. I never read the monthly stuff. Um, in a lot of ways, I always enjoyed the the, the collected the the one offs, the minis, you know, the the out of universe stuff. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think DC was able to. Cause you also love Image, and I think in a lot of ways, what DC did with Vertigo was able to yield what Image became in the two thousands. Yeah, yeah, I, I really think you're right. It set the stage for that kind of thinking, like the work that Karen Berger did really like established what a, a independent non-superhero focused american publisher could look like and yeah i definitely think like image took those lessons and, and i think with them especially especially in like the 2014 era when they kind of re you know were rebirthed you know as like the image we know today i think i think a lot of the core difference comes down to stanley himself ironically enough um, I think a lot of what differentiates Marvel from DC is the Marvel method, which was, you know, you let the artist kind of pace the story and then the writer kind of fills in the dialogue around the art. That's kind of what Stan Lee did. He would let someone like, uh, yeah. you know, Dicko or Kirby kind of really come up with the story and then Lee would come in and finish it. You'd, yeah. And that was like the Marvel Whereas way. DC always let the writer... Uh, plot the story and then the artist would follow along it was the opposite and i think that shows in a lot of the differentiating aspects and i think that even you can even uh unthread that to the point where it feels like marvel puts more emphasis on its larger continuity than dc does now it's not that dc DC doesn't care about its continuity uh but it plays a lot looser with it well and dc does all the time you know like uh, uh, like and Marvel until um, 2015 or whatever Secret Wars. Yeah, whatever. I don't remember the name of the event. Sean would know. Uh, was it was it sure. Secret Wars? Yeah, uh, that was the the first real reboot of the Marvel universe ever. You know, so like they had they had their their history essentially. You know, being built for what 70, 60 years. I'm bad at math. 70, 60, 70 years, yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's that's significant too. And I think that speaks to the more monthly approach of Marvel and the focus that, like, Marvel's focus is the Marvel universe. That universe, that living, breathing thing that they built for 70 years. And it only started splintering off in the 2000s, you know, really. Well, like, yeah, and I think you look at Spider-Man, and that's a good example because... For instance, I didn't like the movie very much Spider-Man Homecoming or even Amazing mm-hmm. Spider-Man, which are two very different movies, but they're two different Spider-Men. And a lot of people liked Homecoming and some comic book fans liked it because they thought it was reminiscent of Ultimate Spider-Man by Brian Michael Bendis. But yep, like look me. how different that those two are from like Sam Raimi Spider-Man, which feels more like the Steve Ditko Spider-Man. So when you yeah. have even other Marvel has had, you know, 50 years of fairly continuous continuity. It really lets characters evolve to have kind of different iterations. Whereas when you really look at Superman, for instance, uh, people did not like the interpretation that Zack Snyder did in Man of Steel or, or Batman vs. Superman. They, the cultural consciousness has a single image of what superman looks like and that kind of that i think that kind of unravels a little bit in the comics too when the new 52 launched that new 52 superman book was fantastic 18 mission 
But it was like that's reviled. right because they didn't they couldn't wrap their head around a different approach to Superman, and he looked different too, because I I think with DC characters, at least the core characters, um, they're paragons of a larger idea, and I think if they delineate too far from this kind of modern mythology that they've created around these paragons. People don't like it. Look at, they had Batman kill characters and Batman v Superman. People got furious at that. Batman doesn't kill. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I feel like you're right. I feel like there's a little bit more room for Marvel characters Except to... Except like Captain America. Be... Yeah, but for the most part, I feel like there's, a, there's more room for them to be iterated on because like you can look at... Like just, again, let's stick with the example of Spider-Man because he's so popular... Like, you can look at the multiple different eras of, like, the original, you know, like, uh, Lee Ditko run up to, you know, what was going on, like, uh, with Dan Slott's run, you know, and then even today, right? Like, that the new Amazing Spider-Man run is, like, 20-something issues in, so it's got its own flavor, too. And you look at each of those eras, and it's it's looking at a different time in Peter's life. You know, like, there are a number of stories about him as a high school kid. There are a number of stories about him as, like, a college-age guy, as a young married guy, as a divorced single, you know? Like, so, like, you, you, you do have more iteration, and I think there's a lot of fans that don't always like that, but I think because of the way that they have kind of had to keep pushing characters forward because of the way that they, they have allowed their universe to keep going for so long... It, it has made, I, I guess, people's visions of them a little more malleable. Yeah, and I think a good comparable for DC is someone like The Flash. Um, for, like, baby boomers that read comics growing up to them, Barry Allen was always The Flash. Um, the Flash was the most popular 1950s comic book next to the Superman. Um, it was very, very popular. And that character died in 1986. And Wally West became The Flash. And for a lot of uh gen what gen x kids yeah gen wally X-ers. west is the flash and you still get this right. very loud because a lot of comic readers are gen xers this very loud demographic of people who get really upset and touchy about wally west stuff we just saw it with heroes in crisis because yep. that's the flash to them right and when barry allen came back in what 2008 that was extremely controversial. Well, shit, man. I feel like it's it's very similar to me getting my panties in a bunch about Miles yeah. v. Peter. You know? It's the same thing. Um, that's another reason why Spider-Verse is so good. It sold me on that whole concept. Yeah, because it, it can't... <laughs> so that's, that's one thing I love about DC that Marvel definitely doesn't have. Maybe not until very recently. Legacy. Marvel has it's different because it's most of the time it's the same characters just over like because they treat it as like most of these characters don't age significantly. Magneto's still a Holocaust survivor somehow. Um, Yeah, (laughs) like in DC, Green Lantern is a legacy title. Uh, They've rubber band back on it in the last ten years because Jeff Johns is horny for the Bronze Age. But like, like a big thing in Morrison's Justice League, for instance, is that like Kyle Rayner's the Green Lantern and Hal Jordan is. You know, he became Parallax, and he became a reviled villain. Um, 
Wally West was a Flash, and his whole thing was about trying to live up to be Barry Allen. How do you follow the shoes of the unfollowable? Oh, I see what you're saying. So you're saying that because Marvel has kept the same characters going rather than like having them pass Yeah, the Marvel, DC has a ton of that. There's yeah, been multiple green, yeah, yeah, uh, multiple green lanterns, multiple flashes, multiple green arrows, multiple Batman. Everyone who's not everyone who's not in the Trinity. Well, basically, there's been multiple Batman too. Yeah, but like, not really. Well, I mean, Dick Grayson was Batman for a few years. Uh, there was uh, Azrael, John Paul Valley. He was Batman for a while. That's they true. Have... I guess you could. There were multiple Supermen too, though. Well, the reign of like, Superman uh, in the. Yeah, after the dark, the death of Superman thing. Yeah, but he's he's been the one that seems to be the most hard, far, hard and fast kind of stayed the same. Um, I would argue that that's true of Batman too, because even those two dalliances were very. But you know what? The, the other thing they did with with that Morrison run is, um, you know, Superman became the energy Superman, Superman Blue, and Superman Red, and so like the whole thing that like that run was supposed to uh, imply that. Things have changed a lot since the original, you know, Hall of Justice, Justice League, um, and that's that's something that was always really appealing about DC, especially with the Justice Society of America, which were all the grandfather superheroes. Like that was how DC felt lived in is that you had an entire superhero group that were around decades before the guys we know now. Because these were all golden age characters. Yeah, but you could. Uh, you're that's true, but I feel like you can like. It's weird because you can argue that about Marvel too, but it's just like the way that they were rolled in. It doesn't feel that right. same uh, way, and I get they're what you rolled mean. into yeah. the continuity differently than they would in Marvel. Because even though Fantastic yeah. Four are obviously old, they're the same age as your Avengers characters and as your X Men characters. Like they all coexist right. as if they came out at the same time, whereas. In right. the continuity, Justice Society is created as like your legacy tradition of heroing in an era before the era we have now. Yeah, yeah, you're right, and that does give it a different flavor. Yeah, because it makes it seem like DC has um, been living with heroes for decades, whereas Marvel kind of, even though it is decades, it, it's a strange kind of elastic calendar where who knows how long these characters have actually been around for? Because Spider-Man's still only in his thirties, so like, what heroes have been only around for ten years? 15 years in the continuity of the books, even though it's a 50, 60 year old publication. Right. Yeah. And you just kind of have to like accept yeah. it. It's like the fact that like, you know, how many times have the Marvel characters interacted with like us presidents yeah. that, you know, like, or that fact that Magneto is a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. Like all those things are a problem. Um, because they want to like have their cake and eat it too. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, uh, what doomsday clock is doing it right now with Superman. Cause uh, Dr. Manhattan keeps seeing Superman land on Earth in different iterations. 1938, right. 1966, 1986. See, that's that's the thing that I actually think is really cool because I, I like that... I, I love the way that Marvel's universe is more like... It's been one universe and they keep... Like, the rubber banding is kind of weird, but it's like... I think that's a cool approach. What I think is neat about the way DC does it, though, is that, like, it's really cool how they acknowledge the reboots in-universe. You know? Like, I think I think it's neat how they kind of, like, make editorial mandates, like, canon. It's very meta-textual. 
Yeah, but it works because of the way that the DC universe is built on legacy and stuff. Like, I feel like the Marvel multiverse feels way more, like, scattered. It is. You know, like, like it, it feels... And that's kind of the thing, though, that I... Again, like I said, I prefer Marvel because I like that their, their stories are like feel closer to the ground and that the characters feel more human. And that's always the thing is, like, I feel like Marvel feels more, quote-unquote, real. You know? Like, it feels more representative of what the world would, quote-unquote, really be like if there were, like, superheroes. And I feel like the DC uni- multiverse, or whatever we call it now because there's the metaverse or whatever... The DC canon feels more like, uh, like you said, like the pan, like the pantheon, like more like mythology, and not in a bad way, but it feels more like it feels more grand. It feels more grandiose and more. I, I think like the fact that it acknowledges like, like I feel like Grant Morrison's interpretation of the DC universe, you know, in terms of like how it's like all this beautiful poetry that rhymes and all this shit. It's like I get that, you know, and like I don't think Marvel feels that way. I think Marvel feels like a little grittier. It feels a little bit more like, you know, especially in its young days, like a little more like punk, a little more rebellious, and DC's a little bit more like, yeah, and and like not in like a like a bad way, but just in like a. You know, I don't know, like, Marvel, like I said, Marvel has, like, a more punk attitude, and DC feels more, like, jazz, or, like, classical, you know, where it's, like, it's got, like, a, like, a more, like, almost, like, (sighs) yeah, I guess I can't think of a better word for it than grand, you know, than just that kind of, like, larger-than-life feeling, whereas Marvel takes the larger-than-life stuff and makes it feel relatable. I think that's certainly the perception, um... I think because most people don't read comics, they just know characters through kind of osmosis by and large of different, yeah, uh, different you know mediums and stuff. It's kind of like how no one listens to opera, but they watch Looney Tunes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone knows the Anvil Chorus because I saw Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. Um, right. Or El Salvatore is what that's from. Uh, yeah, and. and is that Phil's funky fact? <laughs> My funky factoid of the day. Uh, dropping opera bombs here. Um, yeah, I think that's the perception because uh, what the character that people always seem to gravitate toward, toward with, with DC is Batman. And people say he's the most grounded, which obviously he isn't. But if you watch Bruce Timm and Paul Dini's Batman animated series, he certainly comes off as the most grounded character in comics. And that's what... That's what yeah. it's about. It's about how people are able to perceive things through pop culture. You know, it's so funny. I took my dad out to dinner the other day for Father's Day, and uh, we were talking about superheroes a little bit. And because um, he doesn't, sure. he's not doesn't care about any of this stuff, but he's like interested in what I'm sure. interested in. And it's funny because he's the most critical of Batman. Because he's like, Batman makes no fucking sense. The fact that he's a normal guy and that he like goes toe to toe with Superman is dumb. And it's, like, funny that he's, like, I think Superman's more believable in the universe because these are the rules that, like, he can do these things. It's, like, okay, suspend your disbelief, right? Enough that a man can fly and do all these crazy things. Fine. Whatever. It's very strange, the criticism. I've always felt this way. The criticism of Superman is very strange to me because 
a lot of people like stuff like One Punch Man or Dragon Ball Z or, you know, a fucking myriad of stuff that has fantastical elements. People are able to watch a movie like Doctor Strange. Um, but here's a character. It's, it's like a very nihilistic perspective that people can't somehow accept that a guy with the powers of a god could be humble with them. And I don't know what that says about people. Well, that feel that way. Yeah, I, I think I've said this before on this show, but Andy uh, Brown of the Video Game Pals once said uh, to me that he said he said I think the I think the fact that little kids today grow up wanting to be Batman instead of Superman says a lot about where we're at. But as I a think culture. that's changing, fortunately, because I think more kids are growing up to want to be Captain America than Batman. Yeah, and I think that's true too, um, because I think I think like. We talked about this on the show two weeks ago when it was just me, me, Kale, and Sean. Or maybe that was last week. I'm losing track of the days this, at this point. Uh, when it was just me, Kale, and Sean, and we were talking about um, this piece that by Film Crit Hulk about the 90s and kind of like the kind of um, culture that came out of the 90s of it being such a point of like relative prosperity and peace that there was kind of like an edge lord culture that came out of it that's real still real represented in gen xers yeah for sure um, and millennials to a lesser extent yeah and millennials to a lesser extent and i think now you look at gen zers and stuff and it's to a much lesser yeah. extent and i think even even millennial culture is switching that narrative a little bit because i think uh, one of the points that was brought up in the article was how much 9-11 was a cultural shift and why, like, Spider-Man resonated as a, such a, a film at that time was because it was a story about somebody who could have stopped a bad thing that happened in the real world from happening. And I think that's why there's such a – there's still such a resonance of superheroes in popular culture right now. And I think that's represented in an, an overall less – nihilistic attitude in our media because the real world is bad so it's time for escapism. That's why the world needs the Superman now more than ever. Absolutely. And it's a huge bummer. Batman, I love Batman. Not as much as Sean, but I love Batman. The character is never meant to be... The char... Aspirational. Yeah, because this is a character who's rooted in tragedy. True yeah. tragedy. But, and... But also not in a good way, though, because, like, I feel like Spider-Man is also rooted in tragedy, but his story is about rising also above. Batman's. And Batman's is... It is, but it also isn't, though, because the cultural perception of him is that he's such a badass and everyone wants to be him and this, that, and the other thing, and it's like... I get it, Batman's cool, but, like, I feel like his coolness factor kind of sometimes especially to the general public that you're talking about yeah. not necessarily to like the fan who reads it the way i think it's intended um well, i think I, I, I think, think when you really boil down to it marvel dc is mo mostly indistinguishable from one another um from like the nitty-gritty aspect it's a lot about perception it's all about perception and most of that perception comes from yeah. large pop culture aspects yep which is interesting too i guess because there just aren't as many <laughs> I don't know there's a lot of examples of like DC stuff being like dark in the broader popular culture and then like Marvel's being Which is insane because the books are opposite but, like, in a perception standpoint. Yeah, right, exactly. And that's what I think is so Look interesting. Look at the Super Friends. Right. That, that personifies this like more light tone. Uh, but yeah, it's just because Zack Snyder went and fucked everything up. <laughs> Yeah. 
Leave it to the guy who thinks Watchmen is the definitive superhero story to make a bad Yeah, Superman the deconstruction movie. of superheroes is the ultimate superhero story. Right. That's what you should do with Superman. Awful. Yeah, the, the, um, the Doomsday Clock's like doing the opposite, where they're taking the most superheroic yeah. character and juxtaposing it with the deconstruction of the medium. Yeah, and that's why it's fucking brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um... I, I, I'm not, I, I guess I have a stronger preference toward DC Comics, but I like both quite a lot. I grew up more with Marvel than I did DC. Um, and I think probably why I read more DC than Marvel is what you pointed out earlier is because DC has more short version of stories, and I'm not someone that can really keep up with long storytelling. It's why I can't watch Game of Thrones. It's why I can't play games like Red Dead Redemption. It's why I can't read a book like Jason Aaron's Thor. It's not a condemnation of the quality of these things. It's just difficult for me to engage in something in long term like that. Uh, whereas if I read something like Warren Ellis's Moon Knight, which is going to be a Phil's note coming up, uh, that's six issues. I can hand, I can do that. That's easy. Yeah. And especially as an adult with a lot less time than I used to have to just sit around and like read, digest big, long, meaty as a, runs. As a kid, I can watch know? all of Dragon Ball Z, which is 200-something episodes. But as an adult, right. like, I got no time for that. Right, yeah. So I think that's definitely the thing. As I've aged, I like I, I read a lot more DC books than I read Marvel right now. When I do read Marvel, it's mostly I find myself wanting to go back and read old stuff oh the true crisis of a middle-aged person i know it's happening yeah it's definitely happening to me um so yeah i don't know i I thought this was a fun question the conversation went in a few directions i wasn't really expecting we didn't get to too much direct comparison but uh whatever man this is a this that's the fun of these shorter or not shorter smaller group episodes that we can kind of chew on these topics in a way that we don't always always push back on the stereotypes of these things too because, yeah. as I just said, I, I don't think there's a ton that this really differentiates the two beyond perception. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, and, like, I think a lot of it, a lot of the perception comes from things that may have historically been true at one Yeah, point, exactly. Or not not representative of the brands as they I are I think you're now. really saying Marvel's punk in the 60s, because it really was. It was an upstart trying to compete with DC, and DC was stagnant and buttoned up, like you said. Uh, I think what I said about the Marvel method versus the the like, i don't want to say the dc method but the opposite method i think that was true at one time that isn't anymore i think the perception that dc was a writer's house and marvel was an artist's house was true at one point but it isn't now at the, this point these writers and artists cross over between the two so much yeah there's so much less exclusivity like all those like the, the rules of the game are so much different now and like so like 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 players like image and boom and stuff didn't even exist in the conversations as they were before so like the game has changed so much so yeah this is all the perceptions are rooted in history and pop culture i you know that's all that i think that's the only way you can really differentiate the two is just talking about the history but yeah i think um i think either way it's a it's a fun it's a fun exercise you know because like they do have such distinct flavors. Yeah, it's, it's Coke and Pepsi. You know? Yeah. They're the same cola, but there's differences. 
And which one you think is best is all depending on your taste buds. But if you think Pepsi's better than Coke, you're an idiot. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode of The Comics Pals. If you want to connect with us, help the show out, like I asked earlier, uh, you can give us a like on your audio platform of choice. If we're not on your audio platform of choice, let us know and we'll get there. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple Podcasts. I said Apple Podcasts already because that's the same thing as iTunes. Spotify, all the places that your podcasts exist. You can follow at The Comics Pals anywhere you're social media is sold and connect with us check out some of our social media exclusive shows like phil's notes where phil pulls a graphic novel off of his trusty bookshelf every week and gives a 90 second or less review you can also check out my comic book history post where you can learn a little bit more about the history of your favorite superheroes if you're a more casual reader like we described today no shame uh, and all kinds of other cool stuff, you know, get in on the conversation, come reach out to us, tell us what you like about Marvel or DC more, which do you prefer, uh, or what do you like about one or the other and why, you know, uh, we always love hearing from you guys. And if you want to connect with us, you can write into us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. And, uh, if you're cool, maybe we'll read your thoughts on if the air. If you're cool. If you're cool. Major caveat. Oh. So aside from that, um... Go check out our book clubs. We've been working hard on those. They've been great. We just put out our Web Spinners uh, book club just in time for the next Spider-Man Far From Home uh, flick to come out. So we're going to be doing a review of that one as well that you can keep an eye out for. Like I said earlier, we'll be having a friend of the show, Chris Sabella, back on for another interview sooner or later. Um, so we've got a lot of cool stuff coming up for you over this summer as uh, you know, as well as a few other things that I will not tell to you right now that we're working on that are pretty sweet. So lots coming in the next couple of weeks. Get involved. Let us know what you're thinking about what we're doing. And uh, yeah, those are plugs. So before we get out of here, let's do some personal plugs. Phil. Well, you can find Sean Soapbox at Sean Soapbox. You can find Mr. Marco Animoto at Mr. Marco Animoto. And you can find Kale at uh, Stale White Bread. <laughs> that should be his Twitter handle. That would be hilarious. He's at Toto right. and Tell. Uh, look for all their stuff. He's got a, a, a book. Uh, he's part of a publishing company that. Just go to kaleward.com. That's where all awesome. his stuff is now. Awesome. That's what he yep. does. Yeah. And then he does a podcast with his wife, mm-hmm. Gone Global. Yes. Marco and Sean only do things here. So just go follow them on Twitter or Instagram. Um... As, As for, you, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CyborgBebop. Uh, wanted to give a mention uh, one of my favorite podcasts Chapo Trop House for us uh, hard lefties just had Alan Moore on and <laughs> awesome. it's quite a listen he is uh, all over the place in the episode uh, this is a dude who obviously doesn't do a ton of interviews uh, obviously this is tertiarily related to us because this is um, if, if Stan Lee is like the godfather of comics this is like I don't know the weird yeah, uncle. Yeah, very weird uncle. Uh, worth, worth checking out. Uh, and that's all I've got. As for me, you can find me on all social media platforms, at loud underscore Pete. Uh, you can come talk to me about what your thoughts are on this whole DC Marvel debate. Uh, or talk to me about Into the Spider-Verse, man. Now that's on Netflix. It's if on you Netflix? It out, maybe you're in... Yeah, brother! Oh, that's a game changer. Yeah, so... Everyone should watch that movie and come talk to me about it because I really love it. Uh, and if you want to get more content from me, you can find my work over at LootPots.com where I host their weekly Nintendo podcast, The Potscast, as well as our Patreon-exclusive show, After Dark. Uh, so if you want to hear me talk about Nintendo or British cars and strawberries, go check those things out. Um, that's all I got, right? Yeah. 
SoundCloud.com slash the Jetpack Advantage. Check out my beats. That's oh. another plug. All right, sweet. Yeah, right? I don't usually do that one, but there's like half of us. So, hey, I did it. Um, all right, cool. We'll catch you next week for another episode of the Comics Battles when John will be